You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com In 1820, a Spanish slave ship carrying nearly 300 African captives was caught off the coast of Florida. It set off an eight-year battle over the freedom and rights of the people aboard. In a new book, historian Jonathan M. Bryant explains why he calls the case of the slave ship Antelope the most important Supreme Court case you've never heard of. Jonathan Bryant, it's good to meet you. Good morning, Diane. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm pleased to have you here because it's a story I did not know. Set the scene for us. It's 1820. Where did the antelope set sail from? Uh, The antelope was a Spanish slaver, but it left from Havana, Cuba. Uh, to go to Africa in the summer of 1819 uh, to buy slaves, Negros Bozales, they called them, new uh, fresh slaves from Africa to bring back to Cuba. Uh, and while it was off the coast of Africa at Cabinda, a privateer out of Baltimore, but flying the flag of a predecessor to modern Uruguay, uh, captured the antelope and all of the captives who were aboard the ship. Um, Loaded eventually with 30, uh, 331 uh, captives. They set off across the Atlantic. Uh, the privateer was wrecked on the coast of uh, Brazil, and the antelope continued on trying to find a market for its captives until it was captured by an American revenue cutter off the coast of Florida. And what was the state in the United States at the time 
of slavery? Absolutely. A great question. The international slave trade had been outlawed by Great Britain, by the United States, by Holland, by France. In fact, even Spain had signed a treaty that by May of 1820, the international slave trade should be uh, illegal uh, involving Spanish vessels. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, 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 this slave trade continued. And uh, more than two million people, in fact, were brought as slaves to the Americas from Africa uh, after 1808 when the prohibition uh, by most of the major nations went into effect. However, in the United States itself, slavery was legal and slavery was thriving as it was spreading into the what uh, they called the Southwest at that time, Mississippi, Alabama. So help me to understand why the ship was then taken from the coast of Florida down to Savannah. Okay. Um, When the revenue cutter captured the ship under American law at that time, uh, the uh, captives aboard the ship uh, were supposed to be put under the control of the president of the United States, who then uh, was supposed to arrange for their return to Africa. And in fact, there had been a congressional appropriation in 1819 uh, in order to, to pay for these uh, people to be taken back to Africa. Uh, so the revenue cutter brought uh, the antelope into Savannah. By the time it arrived in Savannah, only 258 of the original 331 captives were still living. And those captives aboard the ship were so sick, uh, so dehydrated, uh, that immediately they called for doctors. And about half of the captives were too sick to really walk any distance. To make it even worse, they discovered the average age of these captives was about 14 years Uh, old. And many had died. Many had died. Just uh, uh, at least 50 died before the ship was even captured. And, of course, the the horror of that, because the crew would certainly just slip the the bodies of these dead children, and I'm quite sure the majority of those who died were children, uh, just slip them over the side. It must have been a a horrible experience. How were they fed? How were they kept? (laughs) I mean, were they standing next to each other? How? They, uh, th- this was a small vessel, uh, only probably about 80 feet long. Um, about a, Actually, a, a good comparison would be a 25-yard long swimming pool. Take four lanes of that swimming pool and that length of 25 yards and then put uh, 281 people in that, which was the number aboard the antelope when it was captured. Uh, it, their, their conditions were terrible. It's the summertime in Florida, hot, miserable, probably sickness. Um, and worst of all, uh, the antelope had been voyaging for 99 days at that time, and they were literally out of water. These captives were dying of thirst. They were naked. They naked. were without clothes. Without they clothes. were without blankets. Absolutely. They had nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, they were imprisoned at the horse racing track in Savannah. Why? Um, they thought that would be a convenient place. There's lots of stalls and stables, uh, so you can uh, have them sleep there. Uh, the first thing the marshal did was obtain blankets. Uh, but Savannah in the summer of 1820 was not a place one wanted to be. A yellow fever epidemic began. 
and uh, the captives, uh, the rainfall is recorded for weeks. It rained more than an inch a day. Uh, Yellow fever is raging, and uh, you have this image that the marshal wrote to John Quincy Adams and said was shocking to humanity of these children in wet blankets and nothing else in a muddy field uh, dying. I'm not quite clear why their fate was in question and why this ends up in the Supreme Court. Um, This many captives, even though they might be sick and they might be young, uh, were worth a fortune. Uh, So from the moment of uh, their arrival in Savannah, uh, different people began to file uh, claims Uh, hoping to get at least a share of what would today be the millions of dollars of value that these captives represented. And then the United States attorney, a man who he's a complicated character, as all real humans are, but who is in many ways the hero of the story, uh, a guy named Richard Wiley Habersham, who is the United States attorney in Savannah, enters the case and says, no, uh, under the law, uh, these captives are free and uh, that they need to be returned to Africa. So it became a fight over whether these captives were free or whether they would be enslaved uh, and given to either Spanish claimants or Portuguese claimants or even perhaps uh, the... the uh, Uh, captain of the Antelope, uh, a privateer named John Smith. What a wonderful name for a privateer. Jonathan Bryant is professor of history at Georgia Southern University. He's written a fascinating new book about a ship, the slave ship Antelope, and the hundreds of slaves that came here to this country, first from Spain, then from Havana, captured off the coast of Florida, transported to um, Savannah. And then we have this extraordinary case that begins in the Supreme Court. Now, we have Francis Scott Key coming into this. What is his argument? Uh, most people know of Francis Scott Key only as the author of The Star-Spangled Banner, and he's held up as kind of this paragon, I guess, of, of, uh, uh, of public patriotism. But uh, Francis Scott Key was actually a powerful and wealthy lawyer uh, just over in Georgetown uh, here in Washington, D.C. He had a thriving practice uh, and, uh, in particular, was well-known as an appellate lawyer. Um, Francis Scott Key had... Uh, grown up in a family that owned a plantation with slaves. He himself had been a slave owner, but Francis Scott Key also had uh, very, very powerful Christian religious convictions. And he struggled, I would argue, all of his life to balance uh, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, who uh, that was what he thought of as the basis of Christianity, with his role as a slave master. Uh, a very difficult thing to do. 
Uh, one way he dealt with this was he helped create and then continued to organize something called the American Colonization Society, which uh, American Colonization Society uh, creates a colony in Africa that uh, uh, manumitted slaves and free blacks from the United States can settle, which is now, of course, the nation of Liberia uh, today. Uh, and so he's uh, a, a, a very great opponent of the international slave trade, even though not necessarily such an opponent of slavery. Uh, he saw this case, and it had, had uh, lingered for several years on the docket of the Supreme Court, was not uh, being heard. At that time, the Supreme Court only had a six-week session. There would be more than 100 cases on the docket, and they could only serve, say, 30 to 40 uh, each year. And in the meantime, all of these individuals uh, are held in prison? No. Uh, it might have even been better for them were they in prison. Uh, what they did is the U.S. Marshal uh, in Savannah put the captives out for labor. So they would labor for free. And increasingly, large numbers of these captives, the healthiest, the strongest, were put to work on the Marshal's own uh, plantation, uh, Cottingham Plantation, south of Savannah. He, in fact, in 1822, bragged to the postmaster in Savannah that he was making $30,000 a year off the labor of the captives Ugh. and that he intended to swamp them, which means to literally work them to death. Um, he also, at the same time, was billing the federal government for the care of the captives. Now, uh, unbelievable story. Um, it is an unbelievable story, but to me, one of the most unbelievable aspects of this story is how these slaves were taken in the first place, how these men were captured. Um, we don't know specifics for for uh, the overwhelming majority of the captives from the antelope. We do know a lot about the slave trade in West Central Africa, which is where these people had come from. Uh, the captives uh, typically half were captured in war. Uh, we tend to forget, we say Africa and have some idea of this pan-African identity, but Africa has just as many ethnic and, and linguistic differences as, say, Europe. Uh, and uh, just as Europeans apparently will gladly slaughter one another, so too people in other parts of the world, including Africa, will do so. So about half are captured in war and then sold. Uh, a, another quarter or so, according to work that was done by some uh, British and investigators uh, were kidnapped. And in fact, one of the best voices that I have from the antelope captives is a 10-year-old boy who was being quizzed uh, on the docks in Baltimore about what happened. And he told how he and his sister, when he was eight years old, their parents had gone to some sort of meeting in their city, and they were playing in the yard, and men came over the fence into the yard and grabbed them, threw them over their shoulders, and ran away with them. And the next thing he knew... He was on a slave vessel bound for the Americas. Both he and his sister? Um, apparently his sister was separated from him. And that's, you know, that's the story of slavery writ large. Uh, you are unable to keep families together, unable to be with people. But uh, I, I just think about an eight-year-old boy. Forty-one uh, percent of these captives were between the ages of five and ten. Ugh. I mean, they're little children. This is a child abuse story in many ways. 
Uh, but uh, I, I just cannot imagine being on board a slave vessel, watching people die literally by the dozens. Uh, you yourself suffering hunger and thirst uh, in terrible, hot conditions. It was a miserable experience. How did the 10-year-old get to Baltimore? Ah, that's an interesting story, too. <laughs> uh, the circuit court, uh, it goes to, this case goes to United States Circuit Court six times, and it goes to the United States Supreme Court three times. Uh, truly, truly incredible. Uh, but uh, the circuit court had ordered uh, that 16 would be released and returned to Africa in 1822. So he had been taken to Baltimore and was going uh, along with the other 15 who had been released. They'd been drawn by lot, if you can imagine that. They just lined up all the uh, the captives and then uh, drew lots for who would be freed. Uh, but they went to uh, one of the earliest settlements of Liberia uh, on the slave sh- uh, on a ship called the Strong uh, that was led by Yehudi Ashman, one of the great founders of Liberia. Uh, but Years later, when I uh, the first really good census in Liberia, Liberia is 1843, uh, they've all vanished. So I suspect they all died. Now to a 75-year-old civil rights murder case. A rural community in West Tennessee is pushing the Justice Department to re-examine the death of Elbert Williams. Williams is believed to be the first NAACP official killed for seeking to register black voters. The mystery surrounding his 1940 murder is not widely known. NPR's Debbie Elliott went to Tennessee to learn more. Clues about Elbert Williams' murder are thought to be buried with him here in the Taylor Cemetery just outside Brownsville, Tennessee. Local attorney Jim Emerson walks to a corner of the cemetery set off by two towering oaks. This is the area where we believe he lies. The African-American cemetery dates to the late 1800s. Some graves have traditional headstones, others simple concrete slabs. Many are unmarked. In the summer of 1940, Emerson says Elbert Williams' grave was marked with a churn, now gone, in a rushed burial. There was no funeral, there was no graveside family service. They just dug a hole and put him in the ground on the coroner's orders and Elbert and all the evidence that his body contained was buried in that unmarked grave. There was no post-mortem and no arrest. Emerson is writing a book about Elbert Williams called First to Die. He's white and grew up in Brownsville in a long line of judges and lawyers, yet he'd never heard the story of Elbert Williams until a few years ago and now wants everyone to know. Elbert Williams is a civil rights hero of the caliber of Medgar Evers. Evers, the NAACP field secretary in Mississippi, was assassinated in 1963. But more than 20 years earlier, Williams was part of a group of black professionals and business owners who formed a chapter of the NAACP in Haywood County, Tennessee. Their goal was to register black voters. Emerson says they were pioneers in trying to break a system rooted in plantation life. The atmosphere in Haywood County in 1940 was one of total 
white supremacy, total African-American political powerlessness and economic depravity. The white folks had them right where they wanted them and intended to keep them there. The new NAACP officers and their families were targeted with violence. Their homes were burned, and the president and secretary fled to save their lives. So Albert Williams, a 31-year-old laundromat attendant, said he would host a chapter meeting in his home. Before he could, he was taken from his home by police, never to return. His wife, Annie, was frantic. She was searching for him for over 48 hours. And on Sunday morning, the undertaker sent word, come to the river, they found a body. And it was Albert, her husband. The muddy brown waters of the Hatchie River flow beneath a busy bridge a few minutes' drive from Brownsville. This is the Hatchie River, and it was just about 200 yards downstream from here is where Elba Williams' remains were taken out of the river on the other side. John Ashworth picks up the story at the river. He's the chairman of the Elbert Williams Memorial Committee. He's weighted down. There's a log tied to him. His wife asked to see the body. And that when she looked at him, she identified, yes, that's him. And she identified what appeared to be two bullet holes in his chest. A coroner's inquest was held on the spot. Williams' death certificate says cause of death unknown. But Ashworth says the way he died was intended as a warning to other black residents who might want to organize and vote. You know, just the horror of being thrown in the river out here in this remote location and then having the remains disfigured like that, all of that sends a message that if you get out of place, this is what happens. It worked. The Haywood County, Tennessee NAACP chapter would not be active for another 20 years. Today, Felicia Walker is president of the local NAACP branch. She's got questions 75 years after Elbert Williams died. I know he was in the river, but what really happened? Walker has joined the Elbert Williams Memorial Committee and city and state officials to install a new historical marker in Brownsville in memory of Williams. That helps preserve his story, they say, but they are also calling for the federal government to investigate. It needs to be known what happened to this man. Was he dead before he hit the river? It was those two holes in his chest, was it bullet holes? The FBI did investigate in the 1940s, but did little more than interview witnesses, allegedly accompanied by local law enforcement who were suspect. The NAACP sent Thurgood Marshall to Brownsville on a fact-finding mission to push for a federal prosecution, but to no avail. Attorney Jim Emerson says now the Department of Justice can set the historical record straight. We need to show that there is a commitment to justice no matter how long it takes. We ought not to abandon it now because we abandoned the search for it in 1942. In Memphis, U.S. Attorney Edward Stanton III says his office is considering whether there's enough information to warrant reopening the case. 
certainly uh, we're acknowledging that this is something that's important to this community and, and quite frankly, a fabric and part of uh, this nation's history in the civil rights movement. Civil rights era murders from the 60s have been successfully prosecuted in recent decades, but not a case this old. Stanton says the passage of time is an issue. It is extremely challenging when 75 years have passed, as you can imagine, most if not all of the individuals uh, that could have been involved including witnesses, potential defendants and suspects, uh, are now deceased. One of those potential witnesses would be Leslie McGraw's 84-year-old grandmother, who was a child at the time. Elbert Williams was her uncle. Leslie McGraw says her grandmother used to tell her stories about seeing Williams' body pulled from the river, and talk of reopening the case is hard. It brings memories of that time in the South that was just really traumatic for her. You know, she talked about how, you know, the terror campaign, that very regular to her that there were lynchings. McGraw says after Williams was murdered, the family splintered. Her side left homes and businesses behind in Tennessee and moved to Michigan, struggling to start over. She says most of them never spoke of the murder again. Our family was robbed of a hero. That's why, despite the pain it is causing her grandmother, she'd like a full investigation today. The way that they killed him, they also killed his legacy. Now she says there's an opportunity to restore the legacy of Albert Williams. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Brownsville, Tennessee. I was special, the only colored kid in the class. I became sort of a mascot, like a, like a pink poodle. In fact, I got called a nigger so much, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I thought it was my name. They talked about me like I wasn't there, like I was some kind of pedigree dog or a horse. Like I was invisible. Now, the important thing is to be realistic. We all like you here, you know that. But you're a nigger, and a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why Mr. Ostrowski? I guess the best grades in class... I got voted class president. I want to be a lawyer. Now, I want you to think about something that you can be. You're good with your hands. Making things. People would give you work. I would myself. Why don't you become a carpenter? That's a good profession for a color. Zero in most states. That's the number of elected black prosecutors, according to a new study featured in the New York Times last week. And it caught our eye as a debate continues about racial imbalances in the criminal justice system in the wake of police-related deaths in Ferguson, Staten Island, and Baltimore. So we're going to talk about it with one of the study's authors and one of the few elected black prosecutors in the country. According to the study, funded by the San Francisco-based Women Donors Network and compiled by a neutral data collection organization, about 95% of the 2,437 elected state and local prosecutors across the country were white. 79% were white men. And for some context, white men make up 31% of the population in the United States. Here to discuss the surprising numbers, Brenda Corisi Carter, campaign director for the Reflective Democracy Campaign. She led this study. And my friend and colleague, Kim Worthy, will be joining us in just a few minutes. She is the current prosecutor of Wayne County, Michigan, which is home to Detroit. Brenda Carisi Carter, welcome to WMYC. 
Hello, happy to be here. And listeners, we want you to give us a call, especially if you are a prosecutor, a former prosecutor, a criminal defense attorney with a stake in the criminal justice system, or if you've ever been through the system yourself, if you have had contact with the criminal justice system, and if you think diversity in the system matters. 212-433-WMYC, 212-433-9692. So, Brenda, let's dive into the study. First of all, what inspired this research? Well, our project overall looks at the representation of women and people of color in elected office at all levels across the United States. So we did a big study on that last fall. And then on the heels of the non-indictments of police officers in Ferguson and in Staten Island, as well as rising um, debate and movement around questions of bias in the criminal justice system, we decided to take a deeper dive and look at the demographics of elected prosecutors in particular. And very quickly, before we actually dive into your findings, you looked at all elected city, county, and judicial district prosecutors, as well as state attorneys general in office across the country in 2014. Now, four states had no elected prosecutors, Alaska, Hawaii, New Hampshire and New Jersey, so they don't count. And an interesting factoid, Kentucky had the most elected prosecutors, 161, and all of the data was compiled, as I noted, by a nonpartisan Center for Technology and Civic Life. So let's break down your finding. 14 states, right, 14 states had exclusively white elected prosecutors. Is that right? Um, Yes, that's correct. And then in Kentucky and Missouri, which also had more than 100 elected prosecutors, uh, how many were African-American? We were able to identify one in each of those states. So all but one were white. That's right. And women didn't do much better, did they? That's right. The numbers on race here are so stark that they can sort of um, make the gender numbers kind of pale in comparison, although they're they're equally, um, or not quite equally, but um, similarly, I think, uh, really unbalanced. So 83% of pros- elected prosecutors across the country are men. Well, Brenda, we are so pleased now to be joined by Kim Worthy. She is currently the top prosecutor in Wayne County, Michigan, home to Detroit. Kim Worthy is only the second African-American to serve as county prosecutor in the state of Michigan. Kim Worthy, welcome to WMYC. Hi, how are you? Well, Kim, you've joined at just the right moment. You asked me how I am. I'm feeling a little discouraged, but you can help us out. You can help us understand the context of this. What we're talking about right now are the numbers across the country, and perhaps you can help us understand why it matters. Let me ask you to explain the phrase prosecutorial discretion. What is that? What is the influence that prosecutors wield in our criminal justice system? because the prosecutors are the gatekeepers to the entire criminal justice system, whether it's federal or state or local. And I'm a state prosecutor. Uh, obviously, I have the, there are 83 counties in Michigan. I'm, I'm the elected prosecutor of the largest county. 
and it makes a difference in policy concerns. It makes a difference in charging processes, and maybe it shouldn't, but prosecutorial discretion is important as to what you think should be charged and what cases are ultimately put into the criminal justice system. Here, I see that as our most important function. A lot of people think from watching TV that the most important function a prosecutor has is, is trying cases. Well, it's not. The most important function is making sure that the proper cases get into the criminal justice system for the proper reason. For example, even if you have a case where you know the, the defendant is guilty of sin, but you don't have the evidence to prove it, you can't charge it. You can't charge it hoping it's going to get better. You can't charge it forcing the, the potential defendant to plea uh, to something. That's not how it's supposed to be done. Now, I'm not saying it's done the right way all the time, but that's the way it's supposed to be done. So we are really serious about the charging function here. We want to make sure the best we can that we have all of the competent evidence to be able to make the decision on charging based on the facts and evidence and nothing else. And Kim Worthy, is it true or not that most criminal cases do not go to trial? Because you said from watching television, watching shows like Law & Order, most folks think that the trial function is the most important function of a prosecutor or any any criminal. Especially law and order gets it right more right than most shows do. Let me just say that. But, <laughs> but um, I mean, really most do. cases end in a plea bargain, isn't that right? In most cases do because I'll, not to speak for my own my own county. I have uh, the Wayne County, which the largest city is obviously Detroit, and I have 42 other cities as well. A lot of people think it's just Detroit, but I have 42 other cities as well. So I have 43 jurisdictions, and we also do a lot of work for the federal government and a lot of the federal agencies. So we deal with 90, um, nine, nine, about 90, and on average, police agencies a year. So that's the way that it works. And so we, we base our decisions based on what they bring us. And so, um, it's like I said, the charging function is extremely important. So, Brenda Carisi Carter, this is hugely significant, is it not? If so much power and discretion is concentrated in the hands of one demographic group, as your study found at a critical junction juncture in our history as a nation, the findings of this study are critical. I think so. I mean, when we have four out of five elected prosecutors, for, as you say, from one demographic group, white men, who just have a different set of life experiences from the rest of the population, I think it raises real questions about what kind of equal outcomes we can reasonably expect in the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah, and I Go think, ahead, you know, when it, comes, when it comes to discretion, you obviously want to make the decisions for the right reasons, but of course you have to, you're based it on who you are and what your experiences are. You know, I come from a, a county where the largest city is predominantly a city of color, and I have many other cities of color in, in, among my communities. And I also have very rich communities also within my jurisdiction as well. I have rural communities within my jurisdiction as well. And unless you believe, unless you make a commitment to treating everybody the same when it comes to charging process. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your sex is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. When you do it right, that right the first time, it's better. But when you come to sentencing after someone is either found or pled guilty, then you look at the individual when it comes to the sentencing processes. So we have wide discretion. We may have five different prosecutors in this country looking at the same set of facts, and they may come up with five different set of charging decisions. I hope not, but it's certainly possible. We did ask prosecutors, former prosecutors, criminal defense attorneys, people with a stake in the system, even people who've had contact with the criminal justice system as suspects, 
or defendants to give us a call, 212-433-WMYC, 212-433-9692. Of course, this is the hour during which many of those folks are in court, so <laughs> we're a bit challenged. Well, if, I could give, if, if I could give you kind of an example. Go right ahead. Was, That's why you're assistant, here, Kim. Was I, when I was an assistant prosecutor, this was before I was on the bench for nine years, in between that, those two jobs, I had a, a, a police officer come to me, an African-American woman police officer come to me and say, said that the, the uh, white head of the warrant division at the time, and this was a long time ago, uh, would, would not charge these, just so happened that five of these cases were white women, and they would not charge them with child abuse. And they brought them to me, and at the time I was in the child abuse division, and I looked at all five of those cases, and I said, there is no earthly reason why these files should be sitting on the desk of this prosecutor waiting, quote-unquote, for investigation, when they were all very serious, very prosecutable, very provable cases of child, child, child abuse. And, and some of them were extremely serious. And so I took these files to my, to, to my then boss, John O'Hare, and I said, look, I am being told by this African, and, I, and, and race was, I thought race was an issue here. And I, I really saw that, but it was, race was an issue. So I went to my, my, my boss, and I said, I don't understand, and the police don't understand why these five white women have not been charged. That was the commonality between these five cases. And these were, like I said, horrible cases of child abuse. And there was just a reluctance to charge them because of their, their gender and their, you know, and their, and their race. And I, and I charged them all. He told me to go do the right thing. I charged them all and convicted them all. And, and in one of them, I got a, a jury verdict in 15 minutes. And so, again, that's when um, a part and parcel of who you are makes a difference. And if you have people who are not willing to give every ethnicity or every race or every, you know, both genders, a, an opportunity uh, in their minds to be able to do things that are wrong based on the evidence, then you have a problem. You have a problem. So, we're talk- so your mindset can be a problem. We're talking about diversity in the truest sense, having people of all different backgrounds in a prosecutorial capacity. It's, it's a uh, must. A must. must. I, I want to come back to uh, this issue of incumbency, but we do have a call from Richard in Long Island. Richard, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, you're on WMYC with Kim Worthy and Brenda Corisi Carter, who led this study. Kim Worthy is a prosecutor in Michigan. She was kind enough to call in the middle of her very busy day and join this important conversation. I appreciate your calling, Richard. Yes, you know, I, I, I definitely support uh, the, the diversity issue. Uh, you know, I, I really I think it's important, and uh, certainly people shouldn't be appointed or, or elected just because of their race. But my experience has been I, I, it's a little different. I, I was dealing with two judges who were black women uh, in Nassau County. You're a lawyer, I, Richard? I'm not a lawyer. I'm, a, uh, I'm actually a pro se litigant in a number of cases, but oh. I, I'm also a, um, an environmental activist, and that's, that's what brings me to the court. And in both cases, uh, I had, uh, I'm a white male, and um, in one case, uh, I was charged uh, with a criminal offense for uh, arising out of a confrontation with a homeowner. I was taking photos of some trees being taken down. In another case, I, I had brought an environmental action based on um, the state environmental review law. And in both cases, I found the, the black female judges um, to be extremely, uh, you know, condescending and hostile. And, and I definitely felt that there was a, uh, a racial um, issue there as well. So I, I think it's important, you know, this is strictly anecdotal, and, uh, but I think it's important that we don't look at, at race as, as like a panacea. And there are a lot of incompetent people of all colors and genders who um, are, uh, are in the criminal justice system that don't belong there. It's difficult. Thank you, Richard, for your call. 
Go set a watchman, won't you? If you love to watch paint dry, you might have spent today at the various websites live streaming the official release of the Harper Lee prequel sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Here are a few moments from the live reading by 250 fans at the Monroeville, Alabama courthouse that began today at the crack of dawn. The county and the town were named for Colonel Mason Macomb, a man whose misplaced self-confidence and overweening willingness brought confusion and confoundment to all who rode with him in the Creek Indian Wars. Colonel Macomb, convinced that Indians hated to fight on flat land, scoured the northern reaches of the territory looking for them. He dispatched a friendly Indian runner to Macomb with a message, move south, damn you. Monroeville is Harper Lee's hometown, and the Alabama Tourism Department sponsored today's reading, just one of the events around the world to celebrate this publication day. Veteran Alabama historian Wayne Flint of Auburn University will be reading the book to anyone who will listen today. Very early today, speed reader Ann Jones of Corbridge, Northumberland in the U.K., polished off the 278 pages in 25 minutes and 31 seconds, a page-turner Jones said. While To Kill a Mockingbird was a morality play about heroes and villains in the American South struggling with racism, Watchmen might be more of a piece of sociological realism. There's a, there's a lot of ugly things in this world, son. I wish I could keep them all away from you. That's never possible. Gregory Peck, of course, is Atticus Finch, the voice of morality in Mockingbird, the book and movie. But he is not the same in Watchmen. He is a man embittered and angry. Chair Caldwell, a 43-year-old English teacher from Kentucky, says she's ready to be mad about this possibly new Atticus. He's the epitome of the moral compass, she said. Jenny in Duluth, Minnesota, says there are characters in a story meant to express history. History needs to be taught so that it doesn't repeat itself. I think it's a way to introduce history to the younger population and to open up a conversation about it. Hi, this is Heather Stuyvesant from Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Knowing that To Kill a Mockingbird was actually written after Go Set a Watchman, I see Mockingbird as evidence of Harper Lee herself evolving from the racist views of her time and place. These views do seem to be clearly evident in Watchmen, but are largely absent from Mockingbird, though it shouldn't be called a sequel. And I hope that it provokes conversations about the buried racism in our nation. And some folks from out west, first from Washington State. I will not read the new book. To Kill a Mockingbird could not be made better by a sequel, not to mention it has been too long in between. I don't want to see the characters develop further. This is not a Marvel movie that needs to build a fan base. Hi, my name is Adrian from Springfield, Illinois. I don't know if I'll read the new book. What's sad is that racism is alive and well in America, and as an African-American, I live with racism. What's written in a fictional book is inconsequential, and I have to face hostility and prejudice on a consistent basis. Others have the privilege of experiencing racism in some fictional account. Hi, this is Molly from Chicago. Oh, yes, literature and other forms of cultural expression, especially long form, that are part of popular culture, allow a forum for the teasing out of multifaceted issues that current events show we continually need to talk about. Now, is that what young writer Harper Lee was trying to do back in the 1950s, tease out multifaceted cultural issues? Or was she just trying to break into the New York literary world with some great characters? And Atticus Finch is a great character. 
Royal Oak, Michigan. I will definitely read the new book, and I can only hope it will only affect my opinion of To Kill a Mockingbird positively. To see Atticus as a flawed man on a journey to understanding is what I'd like to see. Hi, this is Jennifer Larson calling from Quag, New York. Not only am I going to read Ghosts at a Watchman, I've gathered together a group of about 25 women for a book club reading. We're going to read it and then talk about it, and everyone's really excited. The response has been amazing. Um, let you know how it works out. On Twitter, users expressed their disappointment of Amanda Stenberg being cast as the character Rue in the film The Hunger Games, an appetite ruined. Rue, your Rue not fit for the gum. Amanda, Rue cannot live in your earth-dusted body. It is not safe for us to think so. Thumbs punch 140 characters of disgust. They cannot stomach you being the Rue to their cats. Sentiments that sound too much like, why does Rue have to be a black girl? Over the weekend, Kylie Jenner posted an Instagram picture of her new hairdo, and apparently she put her hair in cornrows, and that has led to a larger discussion about cultural appropriation. So there's the picture that she put up there. Um, the caption read, I woke up like this. And um, apparently uh, an actress by the name of Amanda uh, Stenberg was not too pleased about this. Now, she's an actress from Hunger Games. That's what she's known for. And she wrote the following. When you appropriate black features and culture but fail to use your position of power to help black Americans by directing attention toward your wigs instead of police brutality or racism, Hashtag white girls do it better. Now we'll get to that hashtag in a second because there's an entirely different story linked to that by itself. But the whole question of cultural appropriation I think is a really interesting one because how far does it go? When does it stop at celebrating a culture and enter the territory of actually offending people? Mm -hmm. So for example, if she'd done a blackface, everybody would be offended, and that would be outrageous. Uh, but are white people not allowed to do cornrows? Well, that seems weird, right? And so I think she had a little bit of a thoughtful follow-up, and then that made it a slightly more interesting question. Yes. So l let's give everybody's reactions here and then decide whether it makes sense or not. So Kylie Jenner said something that I actually kind of agree with, right? She says, mad if I don't, mad if I do... And then the second part, I don't agree with it. I'll go hang with Jaden or something. Apparently, the, the actress dated Jaden. I don't know. I don't care. That's irrelevant. Jaden Smith, they went to the prom together. And so there's drama behind the scenes. I don't yeah. know if Kylie went out with Jaden. That who part, cares? who cares? Yeah. Right? But, but the mad if I do, mad if I don't, I, I think that's an interesting statement because, okay, I'm, I'm ignorant when it comes to cultural appropriation. I'm going to put it out there because mm. I fail to understand the point of view from people like Amandla, okay? And the reason why I say that is because I don't see what Kylie Jenner is doing as offensive. First of all, Kylie Jenner is not a political figure. Kylie Jenner is not a political commentary person. Kylie Jenner is a 17-year-old sister of Kim Kardashian who probably has no idea what's going on in the world. So to ask her to make serious comments about what's happening in the black community I think is unfair. If you're trying to make a statement about how white people can take on black culture and they get celebrated for it, but then black people get criticized for the same culture. Well, then you're making a really great point about that. But that's the mass media as a whole. That's not an individual person. So is Kylie Jenner doing something on purpose to offend you? No, this is a hairstyle that she likes. She's obviously proud of it, which is why she took a picture. I don't think she's trying to make a comment about how, oh, when white people do it, it's awesome, and when black people do it, it sucks. So let's give Amanda Stenberg uh, the credit she's due for us. 
the other part of the argument which I find to be interesting is smart. She says, appropriation occurs when a style leads to racist generalizations or stereotypes where it originated but is deemed as high fashion, cool or funny when the privileged take it for themselves. And then she goes on to also say, pop stars and icons adopted black culture as a way of being edgy and gaining attention. Now, those last two quotes I totally agree with. I think that pop stars do do that, and, and then they are viewed in a positive light. Yes. And, and I agree that when a pop star does it, oh, isn't he cool, he or she cool, and then they get paid a lot of money, etc. But when an African American does it, the authorities don't find it as cool, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got the issues associated with that. If she'd left it there as a general thing, as Anna pointed out, then I think we're with her. Uh, but when you then say, hence, Kylie Jenner, you should not do cornrows, she loses me entirely, right? Yeah. She's not responsible for how authorities react to black people. I don't know, and I don't know if that Amanda knows what Kylie's views are on Ferguson or, or anything else. Uh, I don't know what responsibility Kylie has as a young woman to fix all those errors. We fight for justice in, in the best way we can. And we do take on that responsibility and at least commenting on the news. But I'm not sure I'm going to go put it on every nonsense reality star that if you're not out in Ferguson protesting, you're not allowed to do cornrows. And not only that, I think that the anger in this case is a little misplaced, right? Because Kylie Jenner is celebrating a look that she likes. And I don't think that she intended on harming anyone or offending anyone. In her eyes, it's like, I like this look. I'm going to take a picture of it and put it on Instagram. And she probably didn't expect this. And so when she gets a reaction like that, understand that her her reaction to it will be, well, what the hell? Like, if, if you criticize black culture, you're considered racist. If you celebrate black culture, you're considered racist. So which one is it? And that's where the frustration comes from. The comment that um, um, Amandla made about society as a whole is absolutely true but that's a problem within society when you single out an individual who hasn't made those types of comments well then I think you're distracting people away from an a, a credible message and I'm afraid you're gonna shut down the conversation because then people get antsy they're like well, I, don't, I don't know what to say and they get nervous and then we don't have a constructive conversation if you want to challenge the authority figures great then we're right there with you I'm, I'm not gonna count Kylie Jenner as an authority figure Thought some righteous brothers like yourself might be able to help yourself, but I guess that ain't you. Help who with what? It's your community. That's who. Now maybe you ain't know, but another kid died today. Come on now, look, y'all, that's three this year. In the same spot. Damn straight. No Reverend Slocum, he's having another vigil to put a stoplight in that corner. A Leon County commissioner is calling on Tallahassee leaders to step up after a man was hit and killed while riding his bicycle. Eyewitness News reporter Alicia Turner is live from the Southside neighborhood where that accident happened with details for us. Alicia? Eden, I'm standing here on Northridge Road in Tallahassee, and as you can see, I'm standing in one of the areas that doesn't have a paved sidewalk in the neighborhood. And Commissioner Bill Proctor says this is just one of the safety hazards that make it a danger for folks who live here. 59-year-old Andrew Bugs was trying to cross this same stretch of Northridge Road in Tallahassee that goes from a dirt trail to a paved sidewalk, except Bugs never made it to the other side. In June, he was killed after being hit by a truck and dragged more than 30 yards by that vehicle. Now, a local official is calling the city to take action. Maybe something will get done now by him coming out here and supporting us. 
Thursday, Leon County Commissioner Bill Proctor sent a letter to the city asking them to take responsibility for what happened to Bugs and pay for his funeral expenses. He's dead because the city of Tallahassee has failed to provide for public safety on North Ridge Road. He's dead because the city of Tallahassee has willfully and recklessly and intentionally withheld uh, sidewalks for a community where people paid taxes. Proctor says he believes the driver of the car that hit and killed Bugs may have even been speeding. With a posted speed limit of 35, Proctor says sidewalks aren't the only thing needed in this neighborhood. He'd also like for the city to put in speed bumps as well as a pedestrian crosswalk. The city is supposed to provide for the health, safety, and welfare, and I'm asking, where is our caution light? Where is our speed bump? Look at how fast these cars going, and I'm talking to you right now. And Eden, in addition to all of those other requests that Commissioner Proctor has made to the city, he also wants to make sure that things like drainage ditches are covered and that the city just comes out and takes better care of the neighborhood. Reporting live in Tallahassee, Alicia Turner, WCTV, Eyewitness News. A nice, clean town here. We don't have no problems at all. Everybody knows their place. All the local niggas know their place. I know you ain't no local nigga. You wouldn't be down here on the streets in Pryor, Oklahoma at night. We know you from somewhere else. We will politely tell you, you got no business. Didn't you see the sign on our side of town? We begin tonight with a disturbing discovery on a sign that welcomes you to Moss Point. Police want to know who spray-painted racist graffiti on the sign, and residents are wondering why anyone would spread a hateful message. Dave Elliott is in Moss Point with more on this story. A welcome to Moss Point sign sits at the corner of Highway 613 and Jefferson Avenue sometime Sunday night. Anything but welcoming graffiti was spray-painted on the sign. KKK and white power defaces the north side of the sign. Right now we're looking into investigating it. Uh, we're looking at some possible leads and we're hoping that some people bring some tips to us so that we can bring whoever did this to justice. Police are canvassing the area looking for witnesses. A surveillance camera at a gas station across the street did not capture images of the incident. Moss Point Mayor Billy Broomfield would like to confront the person or persons responsible for the vandalism. I would ask him why. What was the reason for this? What have the citizens of Moss Point done to you that would cause you to react in this manner? Moss Point residents reacted to the hateful message on the sign. Oh wow, it's kind of awful. Now terrorizing us because we are a black town. You got a lot of people around here that's ignorant. Ignorant because they don't like somebody for whatever reason. That right there, that's shame. That's a shame. McClung says if the perpetrators are found, they will face charges. If it's under a certain amount by state law, then it'll be a misdemeanor. If it's over a certain amount, then it'll be a felony. It's called malicious mischief. Could it rise to the level of hate crime? Obviously. You're looking at it, so obviously so. The city's public works department has been ordered to remove the graffiti. They will attempt to do so without damaging the sign. In Moss Point, I'm Dave Elliott, WLOX News. Police are urging anyone who might have any information on the vandalism to contact the Moss Point Police Department. Even the cartoons are racist. Did you notice that? Why do they treat us like that?
Sacramento NAACP is blasting the Sacramento News and Review over its cover story depiction of Mayor Kevin Johnson. News 10's Carlos Sacedo joins us now with more on this cartoon controversy. Carlos. Christina, the Sacramento NAACP is calling the images degrading to African-American men. It claims SNR went too far lampooning Mayor Kevin Johnson and now wants an apology. The local chapter of the NAACP is demanding an apology over this, a caricature image of Mayor Kevin Johnson that appeared in last week's issue of Sacramento News and Review. The cover shows a sweaty and nervous KJ reading about his lawsuit against the publication. It shows his eyes all puffed, uh, his lips uh, large and, and illuminated, um, his head uh, nappy on the side. The president of the NAACP calls the depiction bigoted and goes on to say the images of the mayor with a so-called craze and violent demeanor reinforces negative stereotypes of African-American males. It's a stereotype in reference to the 40s and the 50s in reference to um, others that depicted uh, blacks or African-Americans at that time. The article stems from the paper's allegations of KJ's email misuse pertaining to the National Conference of Black Mayors. The mayor sought to block the city's release of some of those emails, claiming attorney-client privilege. SNR editors quickly responded to the NAACP's claims with the following statement, saying in part, quote, these illustrations are based on an actual photo of the mayor. We refute the NAACP's assertion that the illustrations are in any way racist violent or perpetuating negative stereotypes. They are basically uh, saying to us they don't care how they portray us and that that has to stop. And the Sacramento NAACP is scheduled to hold a press conference this Thursday at 10 a.m. to discuss the images in question. The organization's president says he invited members of SNR and hopes they bring an apology or an explanation. Christina. All right. Thank you, Carlos. We're getting a lot of social media reaction to this story. On the News 10 Facebook page, Barbara Norris said, I like SNR, and this illustration looks like the little black Sambo book I had as a child. I don't like it, and it doesn't look anything like Kevin Johnson, so it is isn't a good caricature. But most people who commented told us the illustration was not racist. Amberly wrote, violent look? That's a reach. Maybe I perceived this drawing wrong, but he simply looks nervous. You can let us know what you think about it on our Facebook or Twitter pages or on news10.net. Keep your opinions coming. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. New at 6, it's being called a work of art, an exhibit in Chicago featuring a life-size portrayal of Michael Brown after he was killed last year in Ferguson. Fox 2's April Simpson sat down with Michael Brown Sr. in an exclusive interview that you'll only see on Fox 2. Brown breaks down his feelings on the display. I really, really, really would like for them to take that away. It's shocking. I think it's really disturbing, disgusting. I keep the thought. That thought, that picture is still in my head. This is a new art exhibit now on display at an art gallery in Chicago. The exhibit titled Confronting Truths Wake Up features the works of New Orleans-based artist T-Rock Moore. Among the works, a life-size mannequin of Michael Brown Jr. lying face down after being shot and killed by then-Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. No one contacted me. 
Mike Brown Sr. says the disturbing exhibit brings back painful memories. The feelings that I kind of tried to ball up and put to the side a little bit, which I, I have good days and bad days still anyway, that just broke, brought the whole day back alive. I have no, no problem with the person that, that created that, but uh, I think they should have reached out to both sides of the family. Me and Leslie are not together. We have our own separate families. So um, I think they should have reached out to the father too. The father still grieving while trying to move on. Staying busy is what making it easy for me. Sitting still was the hardest part. Moving forward, uh, working with the youth, uh, we have a foundation chosen for change. DeMarco Davidson and Jana Gamble are two of several helping Mike Sr. move on while making a change in the community. I would like to encourage everyone to participate in the Chosen for Change Foundation Memorial Weekend and celebrating the life of Michael Brown Jr. Our motto is to teach respect, restraint, and responsibility. And our mission is to save lives one day at a time by empowering youth, strengthening families, and giving back to the community. April Simpson, Fox 2 News. We need that perfect hair. Who exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. You always act like a motherfucking cop, man. This is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be free. I want to be a cop. Police Commissioner William Bratton is not commenting on New York City's $5.9 million settlement with the family of an unarmed black man killed after a white police officer put him in a chokehold. Bratton was asked about Eric Garner's case today. The settlement was announced yesterday, nearly a year after Garner's death. Eric Garner's family says a settlement with the city won't slow down the quest for retribution for his death. WNYC's Fred Mogul has that. Gwen Carr, Garner's mother, said the $5.9 million settlement was not a victory. Garner's widow, Issa Garner, called on federal prosecutors to indict one or more of the officers captured on videotape subduing her husband a year ago this week while he repeatedly said, I can't breathe. We would like to also get the city to continue to support us as we rally and march. Garner family members didn't say why they decided to settle rather than seek a jury trial. For WNYC, I'm Fred Mogul. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. Mike, thank you. People remain skeptical in a community where a man died after being pepper sprayed by police. Two hours of video released Wednesday show what happened, including police attempts to revive Anthony Ware. WIT 42 News reporter Stefan Dingle is in Tuscaloosa. He's been talking with neighbors in the Crescent East Apartments. Good evening, Jim and Sherry. All this community is talking about today is what they took away from video footage showing the death of Anthony Ware. And so far, they have more questions than answers. Residents can be seen rummaging through the wooded area trying to piece together what happened to Anthony Ware when he ran into those woods. I need to see. I needed to see his pain and where it ended. Crescent East resident Rhonda Harris and many others remain skeptical after watching the recently released police footage. 93 headquarters. Go ahead and start us a supervisor as well, please. Aunt had asthma. Okay, he shouldn't have ran. Everybody know, okay, everybody get in trouble. He probably got in trouble in the past. They brought that up too. That ain't got nothing to do with the situation that happened at night. Everybody know, but it's off time to come back that he died from asthmatic. Okay, 
But still, for the most, we know what happened out here. On Wednesday night, a resident told me there was uproar in the neighborhood after many got their hands on the footage. But Thursday, the streets empty as people continue to talk about the inevitable. Well, I watched two whole hours of the video, the recording and everything. I don't think it was good at all. I mean, they knew it before they got to him. <laughs> Two hours and 14 minutes into the police footage, you can see them repeatedly performing CPR and can even catch a glimpse of Ware's lifeless face. But just like Ware's family, the rest of the community anxiously awaits autopsy results. I hope the people honestly believe that we're being as transparent as possible throughout this whole process and that we're doing everything that we can to reassure not only. Mr. Ware's family, but our community, that we're committed to protecting and serving the people who live in our community. Now, Chief Anderson is on record saying he plans to fight for defibrillators for trained EMTs on his staff. There was one on the scene the night that Ware died. She said if there was a defibrillator, it could have saved his life. In Tuscaloosa, Stefan Dingle, WIAT 42 News, coverage you can count on. Now, we've been following the story on WIAT.com from the night of the chase that ended in Anthony Ware's death to the police response to the community. We also have a link to the full two hours of that video that police released. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. Well, last Friday, an African-American woman was returning home from a job interview in Waller County, Texas, when she was stopped by police. Apparently, she had improperly signaled a lane change. Two days later, the woman, Sandy Bland, was found dead in a jail cell. A video taken by a bystander during the arrest shows Bland shouting that the officer had slammed her head into the ground. According to police, Sandra Bland was taken into custody and charged with assault of a public servant. The next morning, police say she was found in her cell, not breathing from what appears to be self-inflicted asphyxiation. The announcement was made by Waller County Sheriff Glenn Smith. Meanwhile, reports have emerged that Smith was fired from his previous post as chief of police of Hempstead, Texas, amidst accusations of racism. Bland's friends and family contest Smith's account, saying the th thought of her committing suicide by hang hanging is unfathomable. Uh, uh, this is Cheryl Lanton and, and Lavon Moley, Bland's friends, followed by her sister, Sharon Cooper. I do suspect there was foul play, and I believe that we all are 100 percent in belief that she did not do harm to herself. We're very suspicious and we're of every tight community, and we're very upset that this has happened, and uh, it seems like there's nothing really being done about it. Each one of us feels like we lost a part of ourselves, and it's hard. It's going to be hard for a very long time. Sandra Bland was 28 years old. She was an outspoken member of the Black Lives Matter movement. She produced a series of videos called Sandy Speaks, in which she discussed social justice and racism on her Facebook page. I want the white folks to really understand out there, black people are truly, we're doing, we, we're doing as much as we can. Not all of us, but some of us are really doing as much as we can. And we can't help but get off when we see situations where it's clear the black life didn't matter. For those of you questioning why was he running away, well, because in, 
in the news that we've seen as of late, you could stand there, surrender to the cops and still be killed. Social media is now ablaze with people demanding answers about Sandy Bland's death. The hashtag Sandra Bland is now trending on Twitter, edging out the Emmys as a topic of discussion. We're still with Maya Shenwar, editor-in-chief of Truthout, author of Lockdown, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Um, we her family, uh, Sandy's family, Sandy herself is from Chicago, from Naperville. Um, Maya, that's where we're speaking to you. Her family's gone to Texas today to retrieve her body. Can you comment on what we know at this point? Um, we have this video, apparently, that's just been released of her saying, why are you slamming my head into the ground? She's then taken to the local jail. That was a Monday. And then she is found dead in her cell. Right. She spent three days in the jail, injured. Clearly, police had severely injured her. We don't know the very specifics of that, but we know she was slammed to the ground. The video shows she was severely injured and then left in this jail cell. And I think that definitely highlights something about our county jail system, that people who are still innocent, they haven't been proven guilty of anything, are left, you know, until they can post bail, which was actually going to happen on Monday. Sanders' friends were about to post her bail. And I think the fact that we see this situation where this young black woman is pulled over for a small traffic violation, she's thrown to the ground by police. She's severely beaten and slammed into the ground. The police actually, actually admonish the person who is filming this horrific scene, and she's taken to jail. And I think this demonstrates, you know, earlier we're talking about prison reform as if it's cut off from policing. But again, policing is the gateway to prison. And policing cannot be separated from anti-blackness. And I think this is just such a tragic and horrifying example of how that practice plays out in reality. And my and my uh, the f people often focus on the federal prison system, but the number of inmates in federal prison is dwarfed by those who right. are in county and state uh, uh, in state facilities. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, and, and what about the oversight in those facilities? Yeah. So there are about 215,000 people in federal prison at this time. And there are around 2.3 million people incarcerated in the country as a whole. And so a lot of those are in state prisons. Again, state prison, a lot of people convicted of violent offenses. Those aren't people that Obama is addressing when he talks about this large-scale prison reform. And then we have 750,000 people in county jails. And most of those people are incarcerated pre-trial. They haven't been convicted of anything. Most of those people who are in their pre-trial are there because they can't pay their bail. Hmm. They're there because they're poor. And we have to remember this is also a racial justice issue that people are given higher bails generally when they're black. And so we have these, this many-pronged system and addressing federal prison alone 
is, isn't going to cut it. So even though there is kind of more of a focus being, being zeroed in on federal prison, particularly since the president, is, the president is speaking out to a certain extent, we can't forget that Obama can't do everything. And actually, the community level, the activism happening at the community level is really what's going to make those giant shifts. Um, you know, as you talked about, she was clearly severely injured. Even as she mm -hmm. said that, why are you slamming my head against the ground? She also said, I can't hear. I can't right. hear. Um, she's brought into the prison. And um, the county sheriff there, the Waller County Sheriff, Glenn Smith, um, who made the first public comments about uh, Bland's in-custody death, had been fired from a past job for his actions involving alleged humiliation and mistreatment of young African-American males. In Hempstead, uh, the place where he was the sheriff before, the city council placed him on probation for six months and ordered him to take anger management classes. He was later fired. Maya, we have 15 seconds. So, first of all, I would say, obviously, it's horrifying that this person is still in his job. Secondly, I would say that it's not always about an individual racist. This is an inherently racist system, and we have to be careful, even though the sheriff obviously shouldn't have kept his job, we have to be careful not to term someone a bad apple and ignore the inherent anti-blackness in the system as a whole. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 18th, 2015. So, I have been told. Compensatory calling, feel free, chime in, folks who would like to share. Uh, obviously, we'll get to workplace racism later on in the broadcast, but anything that you heard in the audio clips uh, or anything else that happened uh, over the past seven days, uh, you would like to share reflections, observations, feel free, chime in. The number to dial is 760-569-569. 7676. The code is 564943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. We are fundraising for the summer of 2015. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a 
physical mailing address for all the folks who would like to uh, invest. Definitely thanks to everyone who has supported us down through the years. Uh, I hope the program has been worthy of your time and energy, uh, and I hope we have helped uh, in some way listeners get a better understanding of what racism is and how it works. Uh, Thanks again for investing. Uh, Before we get to some of the folks who called in, uh, just quick things to point out. Um, I had several articles got published this week, Active Times, lots of stuff going on on the plantation. Um, The article that I wrote about white women, uh, if you've been listening to the cows for, you know, three years or more, you could probably just scroll past the article and just read the comments. Uh, that has become fascinating in and of itself. I'm <laughs> seeing what people have had to say uh, about racist white women. Uh, some of them have had some some of their own personal uh, experiences with uh, treacherous female race soldiers. Uh, and then others had interesting comments as well. But if you've been listening long enough that you kind of have a general grasp of my uh, my thesis on uh, white women, then yeah, just scroll, look at the comments, fascinating counter-racism study. Uh, In other tidbits uh, to get to quickly before uh, we get to the folks who called in, the male listener who suggested, black male listener who suggested that we have uh, Lori Essig, PhD, on the program this week, she was the one uh, tacky, uh, in my opinion, blatant racist. Uh, She was very condescending and and the way that she uh, was talking to myself listeners as well uh she really went hard that oh i'm a victim of sexism i'm a poor struggling white mom single parent two children just trying to do all i can to hold it down this abusive white men are are uh going to town on me as well uh she did her whole spiel and ended with her metaphors about turnips and toolboxes uh the listener who suggested uh that we have her on the program i asked him what were his thoughts uh after hearing the broadcast and he wrote in he said uh just finished listening to the program with essig and no she was completely she was completely far from what i expected i guess that goes against what you and mr fuller say as far as expecting tacky and trifling behavior i guess i expected that someone who was willing to claim dylan roof in her article would also be honest about the system of white supremacy instead what we heard was an attempt at masking issues of race with her own personal agenda in terms of white male patriarchy and gender issues Furthermore, I actually think that she could care less about issues of race, and I now believe that by her stating that she was a single mom, that it really has more to do with her own personal feelings about white males. Interesting, I thought. Moving forward, uh, the clip that you heard, uh, the Leon County Commissioner, Bill Proctor, uh, where he was talking about wanting to get uh, the city of Tallahassee to pay for the funeral of Andrew Bugs. This is a black male who was hit uh, while he was riding his bicycle uh, down in southern Florida. That case was explicitly about racism, even though they did not say it uh, in the audio clip that you heard. Uh, He wrote a letter, uh, Mr. Proctor, where he went into the details of his complaint. I want to read what he said, but this just reminded me, I think last summer we had Dr. Francis Cress Welsing on the program and she and I, we were talking about, they had just done a study at a university in Oregon where they were talking about how it's more difficult. They had 
the research, they have the data to show that it is more difficult for black people to cross the street. They have to wait longer. People don't allow them to go across uh, the crosswalks as efficiently as they do white pedestrians. And Dr. Welsing, when I was telling her this, she thought this was so fascinating. And she said that they had just done a study where uh, they were saying, I guess they were trying to encourage black people to ride their bikes in D.C. And she was saying that black people are more likely to get hit by automobiles. So keep all of that in mind. So we read Mr. Proctor's letter. He says, Dear City Commissioner and City Manager, I formally request that you pay for the funeral expenses of Mr. Andrew Bugs, whose funeral service was held last Saturday, July 11, 2015, while crossing from the unsidewalked side of North Ridge Road to the sidewalk side of North Ridge Road. Mr. Andrew Bugs was struck and killed while he was riding his bicycle, and apparently uh, he was dragged 30 yards as well. The city of Tallahassee's refusal to provide the safe sidewalk for pedestrians and bicyclists has resulted in Mr. Bugs' death. But for the city's failure to provide safe sidewalks for citizens who walk and bicycle down North Ridge Road daily, Mr. Bugs may not have been killed. In light of numerous public requests I have made to you seeking sidewalks for North Ridge Road, I know that you have purposely denied this African-American community an important public safety infrastructural need. The city built a partial sidewalk about three years ago, and you abandoned completing this project. Citizens of North Ridge Road have been paying property taxes and utility fee taxes for over 50 years to the city of Tallahassee. Why did the city build a partial sidewalk and abandon this project, leaving the community unsafe? Mr. Bugs got killed crossing over to the sidewalk portion of the road. He was killed at the juncture that served as an invitation to proceed safely. Only to a black neighborhood have you started but never finished providing a sidewalk. You are negligent in protecting the citizens who travel North Ridge Road, North Ridge Road as pedestrians and bicyclists. You are racist in assessing this black community property taxes from which they can never receive finished roads, covered ditches, sidewalks, bicycle lanes, or covered bus stops. And now another pedestrian death has happened on North Ridge Road. What does it take for us black people who pay city utilities, who are arrested by city police, whose children are dissed by city parks, whose taxes support white neighborhoods across this city, including the most recently built white neighborhoods, whose black neighborhoods are butchered by vehicular traffic and whose city commission gives not a damn about black lives that are affected on a dangerous street that has zero speed bumps and no speeding ticket citations given to anyone this year. City government fails black communities, period. It is the same everywhere in black communities, South City, Springfield, Bond, Allen subdivision and Frenchtown. The city refuses to provide safe sidewalks, although these taxpayers have paid property taxes and city utilities for well over four decades. And now the Bugs family has received a funeral bill that is the city's fault. I am requesting that you do the honorable thing to amend for your dishonorable negligence and reimburse the family funeral expenses for their loved one, Mr. Andrew Bugs. Please know it is quite disheartening and downright unforgivable that the city has failed this community again as another pedestrian death has occurred on North Ridge Road. 
This is why 27% tax increase is so wretchedly despised and opposed by those who receive less for their tax dollars in order to support those who receive so much. I am again requesting that North Ridge Road receive the safety improvements that the people who have paid taxes for 40 plus years deserve to have. More specifically, I am asking that North Ridge Road receive sidewalks that are completed and safe, that the ditches are covered as has been promised years ago, and that speed bumps be placed to slow traffic down in this residential neighborhood. And now Mr. Bug's death, thanks to the city. Sincerely, County Commissioner Bill Proctor. Outstanding, in my opinion, demonstration of black self-respect. I was overjoyed uh, to see that. I doubt seriously that the city of Tallahassee is going to uh, follow through on any of their promises, but uh, I at least uh, appreciate uh, seeing black people standing up and pointing that out and acknowledging, calling it what it is correctly, that this is deliberate racist abuse and negligence last report i know sandra bland got a lot of attention uh this week the black female uh, who mysteriously died uh, in a texas jail cell um however her hanging death was reported simultaneously with a black teen who was also found hanging in an Alabama jail cell. I think the reports came out the same day, just for whatever reason, the uh, teen in Alabama did not get nearly as much attention as Sandra Bland, for whatever reason. Uh, when I saw both of these, it immediately reminded me of uh, Kimberly Randall King. Uh, we have listeners who are in her family. If folks remember, she was the black female that was found uh, hanging in a cell mysteriously in Missouri. Uh, in September of 2014, just a few, about a month after the shooting death of Michael Brown Jr. Uh, but the report uh, reads, a black teen died this week in an Alabama jail cell, and authorities say it was a suicide. A uh, report reads, an Alabama teen died in her jail cell earlier this week, just over an hour after she was booked into the facility. Authorities claim the cause of death was suicide by asphyxiation. According to AL.com, officials with the Homewood City Jail said Kendra Darnell Chapman, who was black, was processed on Tuesday at 6.22 p.m. following an arrest for first-degree robbery. Police say Chapman, 18, stole a cell phone from another individual on the street. Chapman was last seen alive at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday when staff conducted an initial welfare check. At 7.50 p.m., jailers returned to find Chapman unresponsive. Authorities say she hanged herself. She was later pronounced dead at a local hospital. The Homewood police are investigating her death, according to local WSFA. Bill Yates, chief deputy coroner for Jefferson County, told the Huffington Post that the results of Chapman's autopsy are still pending, Calls to Homewood City Jail and Police Department were not immediately returned. Uh, I will stop there. As I said, this case did not get nearly uh, as much attention for this 18-year-old black female. And this happened almost simultaneously when the news broke about what happened with uh, Sandra Bland uh, down in Texas. Uh, with that, uh, we will hit the callers. Again, we'll be back tomorrow, early program. Early start with Shani, uh, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we should be in. Uh, folks would like to chime in if you would like to participate. For all the folks who cannot normally tune in to the cows at our typical broadcast time, we'll be on early tomorrow morning. Feel free. Chime in. Context of white supremacy. Folks who would like to participate on the program, 
number again, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could uh, watch the background noise, that would be appreciated. If you could uh, speak one time and then allow all the other folks to share, that would be great so that uh, everybody has an opportunity to participate. Thank you kindly. Looking forward to hearing from folks. Everyone who dialed in with the hand up, your line should be open. Folks should be with us. Don't know. Justice says hi. And if you have a radio on in the background, if you could turn that off, uh, or if you're close to a television or something, uh, if it's if you can't do anything about it, if you could use your mute button, and then when you're ready to speak then you can unmute and share. But if you know you're close to a television or what have you, definitely try to compensate for that as best you can. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, greetings to just the host, the listeners and callers. Um, just I know you were mentioning about uh, metaphors uh, these past couple of programs, and I noticed there was a, uh, a part in the segment, uh, the audio segment, where that term bad apples, I think that that would qualify as a, as a metaphor. And uh, I don't know if that was a, um, a, a white person sitting there uh, defending, I guess, um, the label or somebody being labeled a racist. And she was saying, well, you know, uh, I don't know if we should, we got to be careful about labeling somebody a racist and they got their job back. And I'm like, you know, I, I thought about that. Like, what do you mean, bad apple? You know, like, how can you compare that to um, the issue of racism? You know, and obviously I know many uh, white people do not want to uh, label themselves as racist, even though they know they are uh, willfully engaging in the act of racism. So I, I was just thinking of how can this comparison keeps coming about, specifically when it comes to um, law enforcement and suspected race soldiers and them engaging in attacky behavior, racist behavior. And uh, there was um, a, another segment about that, uh, the, the cartoon drawing of, I think, uh, Kevin Johnson, I think. And I noticed, I think the at, toward the end of the segment, how I don't know if the lady said most thought it wasn't racist or it was a, a lot who didn't think it was racist. And I noticed how there are still black people who still can catch on to the, the not even just the subtle nature of how racism is practiced, but it's done in many various ways, like uh, symbolism, the cartoons and whatnot. And uh, there was also a, a video I seen today about uh, black people uh, in South Carolina. I guess they were at this rally that the Klan had. And I seen one where uh, I guess they were out in the streets um, fighting or whatever. And 
there was uh, the the uh, Klan was in front of the government building, I guess, uh, the state capitol or whatever, and they had a whole bunch of barricades, and it was just tacky and trashy behavior from uh, suspected racists. And you know, one of them was mimicking using gorilla noises, and they were they interviewed a black male, and he said that uh, a a, a racist, I'm assuming, came up to him and said, he whispered in his ear, uh, how does it feel to be locked up? And I don't even think, obviously, he didn't even know the guy. And he was, I think he said that because it just goes to show you how they can initiate uh, conflict in so many different ways, even, you know, regardless of what the setting is. So uh, I, I found that very interesting, but, you know, not really surprising. And that's that's all I really have for now. I guess just real quick that metaphor about bad apples. That was uh, a white woman, Maya Shinwar. She was on uh, Democracy Now yesterday. She was talking about the in- incident with uh, Sandra Bland, uh, where I think Amy Goodman pointed out that the. Glenn Smith, I think, is one of the officers involved in the Sandra Bland case that he had been fired previously under allegations or suspicion of racism. And her response was, uh, uh, it reminded me of Lori Essick. You know, we don't want to focus on individual white people. You know, it's a system. You know, that's that's what we want to keep our focus on. We don't want to get caught up thinking white people like me are responsible for why these things keep happening. Uh, Yeah, that was who that was. Maya Shinwar. And she does have a book uh, about all. I'm sure she's extremely informed uh, her book uh, about all of this as well. Hello. Yes, sir. Oh, hey. Uh, good evening. Yes, that last part. Uh, the, the system, as opposed to not not one individual person, that that came out so clear in the segment with my least favorite journalist. You know, just more reasons why. I cannot stand the Young Turks. You know, the idea that, uh, you know, okay, you don't blame society for racism, fine, but not, not Kylie Jenner. No, 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 no. She's just an individual who's, who's not doing anything really wrong. And for the record, there was a portrait of her in blackface. And I must say, I did laugh when I heard Jank Ugar talk about how he fights for justice. I mean, could, could, could anybody tell me when he did such a thing? Because I, I haven't seen it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and just the way the idea that they were just dismissive of Manla Sternberg was it Sternberg. But anyway, uh, and I'm also glad you played that Hunger Games clip because I've been discussing her scene 
quite a bit. I never read the novel. But did you notice how she happened to die in that picture? I think she gets impaled. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I think in the film, Rue's character, I think she gets, like, speared or something. Uh, exactly. The still holding a spear. I just thought, man. You know, both black girls killed holding a spear. We know, obviously, what the people were trying to say. You know, I mean, you just, it just couldn't have been more obvious. And, and I'm also glad when Ken Prosecutor Worthy came on, because like I said, we've been talking about how dangerous white women are. I'm particularly glad how she took these cases of these five white women that were going to get a free pass for child abuse and got all of them convicted. You know, none of this, uh, they're victims. None of this, oh, they're just oppressed by white men. No. The white man prosecutor was willing to let them go So it was just good that Tim Worthy decided, no, they're going to be punished, and that is that. And like I said, just need to uh, keep up our efforts. And have you, as the, uh, as the startup for the GoFundMe account, Come up yet for for the young eighteen year old sister that died in prison. I haven't seen uh, any information about her getting a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, the eighteen year old uh, Miss Chapman. I haven't seen any yeah. any information on that. Her half million dollars. Nothing. Uh, nothing of the sort. Okay. Uh, I believe you said you were looking to help the family start one. Oh yes, that was Anthony Ware. Yes, absolutely. That's just so many victims. I know it's it's difficult to keep track, but that mm. was Anthony Ware, who was also in Alabama. Um, one, our listener, our longtime caller in Alabama, told me about the incident with Anthony Ware and him um, dying strangely in police custody. I played that clip this week too. Um, but yes, I did speak with his family and they are, um, now swamped with all these unexpected, uh, funeral expenses and, uh, they would appreciate if someone could help get a, uh, GoFundMe campaign. It doesn't have to be GoFundMe, but one of those type crowd, uh, sourcing websites, if someone could get one of those constructed, that would just be set up directly to go straight to the family. Uh, to help with expenses that they're incurring around all of this. Uh, I'm totally down to help. I have never done one of these. I don't think it could be that difficult, but uh, if there are any listeners who would be down to help getting that set up, I would super appreciate it, and I would ideally like that to be set up before his Anthony Ware's family and witnesses come on the program on Monday to discuss what happened. That way we can promote it within the program. So if over the next 48 hours somebody has the will and ability to get that done uh, and I'm willing to help too please let me know like ASAP so we can get that knocked out 
right up. Thank you. And I said someone else's seat. May I have the opportunity to speak? Yes, ma'am. First of all, I want to say I'm happy to be here. Power to the people. A lot of uh, constructive information this week, guys, as always. Um, I want to say uh, long live the slave ship antelope. As a mother of a 16-year-old, it's hard to hear about five-year-old uh, to 10-year-old children um, going through such um, degradation. I mean, it's really hard to hear that. Um, you know, we had here in the U.S. child labor laws had to be passed because the same uh, same uh, mindset was uh, displayed then. You know, I was telling my daughter, and she, as a matter of fact, she had a book. I think it was one of those dolls. I forgot the Annie's dolls or American doll, and it had the book about the child slavery in it. And she couldn't believe that America had ch ch uh, you know children working in slavery in the factories and. This is so true, but what they went through was just terrible. And him saying that the average age was between five and ten years old. Do you know what a five-year-old child looks like? I mean, unbelievable. Uh, I did not know that Francis Scott Key was a powerful attorney working in Georgetown, owned slaves, slave owner. Uh, did not know that. Then also, the marshal saying, you know, that. Uh, he made like $30,000 a year, and then the U.S. supplementing him for, billing him for uh, the upkeep. I mean, talk about being in cahoots, the government being in cahoots with this terrible operation. Um, same thing is really going on today, and the fact that he said he wanted to work these little children to death. I mean, I, I think about the deeds that are done with people, and sometimes there's a there's a thing in the Bible that says the sins of the father, meaning that whatever that father has done, it will come on to other people, and somehow that that does happen in real life, and I and I just just wish it on on their family. I I don't feel any forgiveness for anything like this having uh being kidnapped, these eight-year-olds playing in the guard, I mean, in the yard, and, and, and someone just jumping over the fence and, and kidnapping them and just taking them, and they never know, and separated from, you know, the, the, the eight-year-old separated from his sister. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's hard to believe. Um, also, um, long live, uh, I never heard about Mr. D uh, Albert Williams, in 1940, just trying to have a a, a, a a session in his home about voting, and he was never seen again. I do hope that his family uh, continues to fight for this case to be reopened. I mean, you know, um, you know, Martin Luther King always said, "A lie can't live forever." I'm sure there's someone out there who knows what happened and who will come forth because that happened, uh, you know, with um, Emmett Till. Um, uh, let's see. You know, and that, you know, they all, you also said, well, there was also something played in the video about how they felt they had their, their niggers where they should, I'm sorry, their ends where they should be. And, you know, the NAACP did not open up for uh, 20 years. Uh, you know, they were so stricken by this that they didn't open up the, reopen the NAACP after 20 years for that. Um, Moving right along, um, the fact that there's such a disparity with um, white men 
versus black men in the criminal justice uh, system as we go as to um being prosecutors now this woman really said something extremely important and it i mean it really god knows it caused me to think so hard because i have to write something about why we should be voting for uh, a march that we're having well we're going to be registering voting and this just really really ties in with the assignment that i have to do how these white women were abusing their child to no return and how the prosecutors did not want to prosecute them because they were white. How many, and, and she talked about the mindset, how, you know, when you have people who, who come from the same background, you have a mindset. These white people don't know how black people operate. They just have their set, you know, their 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 mind made up what they want to do but here these children these white children are being abused by their mothers and these white children can't even get justice because they feel you know the white the, the, the prosecutors feels that oh we can't do that to our own because we don't want them to see that white women can be so abusive you know no they can't be abusive we can't have this out there and the fact that she said that when she took the case to court they made a decision within five minutes. So you know, audience, it had to be very, very bad to, to render a decision in five minutes. Wow, I mean, that is something. That truly is something. And um, all these these they're all these white men, I mean, that's why we should vote. Now, she, there was something that I have to go back in the tape and listen to because they did exclude New Jersey, where I'm from, and I, I did not catch that, but I will get that as want to continue on. Um, last but not least, uh, they well, there's two more things. They talked about the cornrows. I'm sure you're... I don't know how old your audience is, but I remember Derek came out with this perfect tin, and she had the cornrows, and everybody just waved this uh, this this uh, woman who was blondie had these cornrows, and it was like an awakening for white women to have cornrows. It was so beautiful. But when, like the woman said, you know, it seems like when we sport our our. Ex- Necessity. It's not like anything, but when a white woman puts it on with the big collagen lips inflating their behinds and, oh, it becomes so beautiful and so, oh, so elegant. So I can definitely understand why, you know, we as black women get upset because we have these attributes to begin with. But when it's worn on a, 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 a Caucasian woman with the blonde hair, then it becomes, oh, Voila, you know? I don't mean to sound so dramatic, but that's just really, really how I feel. Um, uh, let's see. The uh, guy riding the bike in Tallahassee, the little boy who was riding the bike, I feel that I wanted to ask the question, you did answer it. Was it really a black community? And, of course, we know what Tallahassee, when we think of Tallahassee, the only person I can think about is Emmett Till. So you can see those st- those, those same that same racism run through that town. Um, last but not least, um, I am just so sad with uh, Sandy Bland. I do hope she gets justice. I hope that um, we do get to the bottom of really what happened to her because I truly don't believe this woman killed herself in jail. Thank you for your time, and I will mute my line. I just wanted to... to comments uh real quick and unless i've been misinformed which certainly could be uh emmett till uh was murdered in mississippi 
the incident in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm not sure what the Emmett Till connection would be, but just... You're right. It was Money, Mississippi. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I think, was he drowned in the Tallahassee River, though? No, it was, it was my, what was the Tallahassee River? Maybe I'm getting my, my facts. Conspir- I'll, I'll find out later. No problem, sir. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to say the thing that I think about uh, when I think of Tallahassee, Florida, the first thing that pops to mind is Florida State, um, which is in Tallahassee. Uh, and they have been in the news daily um, for uh, criminal Negro mischief. Um, but the thing that I think more than anything is uh, they had so many articles uh, beginning of this year, Jameis Winston and talking about the football team, these hoodlums and thugs. And, oh, my God, they're just running amok uh, in Tallahassee. And they talked about how much money the football programs make, uh, makes the, uh, the Florida State football program makes. They won the national championship uh, last year and they were in the running for it this year. And uh, it was something like, I mean, millions of dollars is generated just every time they have a home game. I think it's like $10 million. How in the world can you have a $10 million per game event? in a town where black people can't even get sidewalks? Like, are you serious? And it's mostly black people on the team, and we can't even get a sidewalk? Like, why? and that's what I mean when I say this is deliberate terrorism. That's the way that we should think about it, because that's the end result, regardless of whether it's Dylan Roof in the church or just, you know, we'll make sure the niggas don't have a sidewalk, and we know that that's going to end up being, you know, 5, 10, Black people per year get hit for whatever reason. We already know that's going to happen. I mean, that's what white people do. The other quick points I was going to make that segment about the uh, attorneys and the lack of black prosecutors. I thought that clip was amazing for so many reasons. Like I was walking around. I was walking around the grocery store and I like disrupted everybody. <laughs> like I was yelling like I couldn't even I couldn't even shop correctly because I was just stunned. Like at the stuff that they were saying. Discretion. I just had a tirade where I spent about five minutes on a compensatory call in talking about discretion. How that is that word right there is code for white people. This is your cue to anything you want to do to black have at it. And we'll just put it under the rubric of discretion. Anytime where it's not exactly and precisely codified, this is what's supposed to happen every single time. No exceptions. Anytime where it's, hey, it's up to you. You can decide what's going to happen. White people are going to go berserk. That's what it's for. That was one segment. And then towards the end where the white guy called in. (laughs) It <laughs> was like, uh, you know, yes. we got to make sure we don't leave out these nasty, hostile and, and these nasty black women. <laughs> witches on the no, bench it's... now. I mean, we could have this conversation, but I have had some nasty black winches on that bench. I mean, and it's not even any black prosecutors. That's the whole point of the clip is that it's no black, non-white prosecutors, male or female, period, to begin with. And. Well, I found one, and she was nasty, and I just want to get that on the right. And it was on an environmental issue, so right. why would she be nasty about an environmental issue? I, I, that, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that was the last thing I wanted to get in. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Um, the first thing... Um, is uh, what I I think is a metaphor. Uh, most metaphors have at least two words, but this metaphor uh, is a single word. Uh, 
the term uh, ignorant when it's applied to a white person that is practicing racism in a uh, much more obvious form where most people can uh, identify that that person is practicing racism. And a lot of times uh, the, the reaction would be from, I've heard it from white people and I've also heard it from non-white people, or where he or she is is being ignorant. And uh, 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 it would be interesting to ask that person, you know, uh, precisely on what they mean uh, when they say that the person is being ignorant uh, when it comes to what they said or did in the in their practice of uh, racism and white supremacy. Uh, about the uh, black female who uh, I suspect was murdered. Uh, as a uh, retired uh, firefighter, I've been on calls uh, at uh, police stations where they, you know, they have holding cells, and at uh, you know the county jail and whatnot. Uh, almost no one takes it serious. Uh, especially with a non-white black person, for the most part, that's what's going to be. Uh, you're not going to take the person serious uh, uh, because uh, they are in jail and they are, quote-unquote, non-white a black person. Uh, in a lot of cases, even the uh, the personnel, the fire rescue personnel, even if it's a non-white black person that's a part of the uh, fire rescue team, they're not going to take it serious in a lot of cases. But it's, to me, it's obvious that this young lady uh, uh, had uh, severe injuries, uh, any, anything from a broken neck, cracked skull, concussion, you know, and that's just for starters uh, concerning uh, uh, very serious uh, injuries. And uh, so uh, it'd be, it's going to be interesting on, on how uh, this particular uh, murderer's act was, uh, is going to uh, 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 materialize uh, as things go 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 on. Um, last but not least, I, I, it's still stuck in my mind about this uh, your your guest, your white female guest, and uh, and and what sticks in my mind is that picture, <laughs> that picture of her. Uh, she looked at. I mean, I don't want to be name calling anybody, white or non-white, but that picture she looked very disheveled. In, in that picture, uh, and it kind of like fits her attitude uh, that uh, she portrayed. She portrayed in the uh, in the in the in her appearance. I mean, I mean, she was very disheveled. If one can look at a picture and 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 have a uh, an impression of that picture, uh, where obviously her hair looked like it was undone, and uh, uh, she was. Like angry, like she had a uh, anger, angered at something, you know, in that picture. And based on what I, what I heard heard you saying this evening of, about uh, the, all of the issues and problems that uh, she was uh, complaining about, uh, even in her personal life, uh, all of those all those signs that I, that someone was talking about uh, 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 about white females. Uh, to be watchful of, and, and she fits almost all of that category, although I don't think that she's overweight. 
I could be wrong, but I don't think she's overweight. But, but uh, I mean, she had a very deceitful. I mean, I, they're the only one that's thinking this way, you know. <laughs> but but it, she didn't look real, very, very pleasant. And that's, that's all I have for right now. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, uh, Gus, and to the cows listeners. Um, I have a comment, and then I have a question. Um, Florida, just to frame it in reference, my my dad went to grad school at Florida State, and that is a beautiful, huge campus, like, that sits there, and, and just like contrasted earlier, black people in black neighborhoods, they can't even get sidewalks. Like, I was driving, like... My dad was in a class, and I was driving down the street back to his apartment, and you could see, like, like they don't even have frat houses. I'm like, fam, you, they got a building for the frat house, and, like, the white guys, they were playing volleyball. Like, with real sand on the bottom of, I mean, just to show how beautiful and manicured and sidewalks, and they got the whole... The whole nine yards, but black people can't even get sidewalk. It is a beautiful campus. I mean, a real, 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 I mean, it's maintained like nothing I've ever, that's the prettiest college campus I've ever seen to me. Uh, on another note, um, I have a question, and they kind of glossed over it, and the host kind of glossed over it, you know, on that radio program talking about um, where, the, where the man was uh called in and talked about the black judge. She was nasty and she had a bad attitude. He glossed over the, did I, was I hearing things? Or did he say also that he was an environmentalist and, you know, basically had no law background. But didn't, didn't he say he was a, a defendant in a, in a homo, like where somebody was taking homosexual pictures? Was I hearing things? Or was that, was that real? Or what, what was that? He said he was a defendant but it wasn't about homosexual pictures. It was about a, a homeowner. And he said that he was taking pictures um, because they were, I guess, removing trees uh, from the property. And so I guess since he had already said he was some sort of environmentalist uh, that, you know, he was, I guess, photographing these trees being removed. But I think that was what it was, unless I'm in error. Oh, okay. Okay. Cause I, I thought I was hearing things. I thought it said homosexual pictures or something like that. I, I was, I couldn't really make that out. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I misheard my wig was covering my hearing aid or something. I don't know. But, and I had my hearing aid on too. I couldn't, I couldn't really hear that part. Okay. Um, but thank you for clearing that up for me. While uh, the next person gets their thoughts together, just uh, this was, I think I had said some months back that uh, I think there should be a pause when people get on their rent to go at the NAACP and how white people have controlled it and it's whack and, you know, they don't do anything. Uh, that there are a lot of black people that names we probably do not know, won't ever know, uh, who have died and or uh, tried to do something constructive in working against racism. It wasn't just the report in Tennessee of them trying to get this cold case uh, back, but it was also that case in 
Sacramento, where Mayor Kevin Johnson uh, and if man, if you check at those, the photos of how they depicted him, it looks exactly like little black Sambo uh, from like the 40s. In my opinion, like they knew exactly what they were doing. And this is not the first time uh, that they have been talking about racism with Mayor Kevin Johnson, uh, because he spoke out during the middle of everything that was happening with Eric Garner and Michael Brown and white people in Sacramento got upset about that too. And so that was within the last seven months of this happening, but it was the Sacramento NAACP chapter that spoke up and saying that this was uh, incorrect and they felt an act of racism while folks are waiting. Anybody we haven't heard from have something they want to get in? Hello. Uh, you're a little low. You can speak up. Hello. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to offer my condolences to the families of um, uh, Sandra Bland and Kendra Darnell Chapman. I know there are countless other names, you know, of others who could have died as well, you know, in uh, police custody this week. And, of course, you know, uh, er at an earlier time, but I at least wanted to acknowledge those two victims. Just want to include that uh, Tallahassee is the capital of the state of Florida, also. And black people can't get sidewalks. What a disgrace. What a disgrace. Mm-hmm. And that's a significant omission as well. Uh, if you just talking about journalism and how things get reported. Now, the audio report that you heard, uh, it was great. You got to hear from Mr. Proctor. He was there. They talked to him. He got in, you know, his concerns, and they showed the traffic, and they got to talk to uh, Mr. Bug's family, got to see where, you know, he got hit and everything. But for the letter that he wrote and the allegations that he laid down, for that to be totally omitted, like there's no mention of the term racism, there's no mention that this happened, he thinks he's alleging specifically because these are black people. That is huge. That's how white people can have a huge impact on our understanding of how pervasive racism is, that it's being talked about all the time, even when it's be- not being mentioned. Uh, but that's just one aspect of how they can have such huge control. The people that put that story together, we can do this whole thing that's obviously at its core about racism, and we make no mention of that at all. In contrast, the governor is a multi-millionaire who I believe claimed that he grew up in public housing. White male. Scott is his last name, I, uh, I think. Rick Scott. I was I was just going to just just a quick point out uh, about the NAACP that was started by the Springer family. 
as as Malcolm X pointed out, victim of racism, uh, Malcolm X pointed out, that that was started by the Spingarn family. In other words, that was started by white people. And so not black people, but, you know, it's something that white people started as as they do all, they engineer all social movements, just like the civil rights movement was engineered by, by the government also and started by the government. And, you know, as black people join it, they join in it for real, thinking it's a, you know, real organization. I just wanted to point that out and... and Consequences happening, just like Nick Evans, he was shot in his driveway and everything. And uh, that's all I wanted to add. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, this is a caller from New Orleans. I'd just like to uh, comment on uh, some of the things uh, your callers were saying. Uh, as far as white women in particular appropriating um, uh, black women's uh, hairstyle and culture uh, or whatever else um, in general. Uh, I guess I could see it more so pervasive, like if you look at uh, black hair care for black women and specifically, it just seems like like today when I was just um, just looking at uh, some of my uh, news and stuff, it just seems like the articles on black hair care, it would just be these images of these white women and uh, talking about, you know, the things that they do for natural hair care. And I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, what the hell are you guys even doing in this? I mean, this was started by us. I mean, we're the ones that have uh, the history of you guys telling us that our hair was inferior um, good hair, bad hair. I mean, what what's the point? I mean, I know, but it's it's just frustrating to seeing how pervasive, you know, they try to infiltrate every aspect of anything that we try and start up, whether we start it up or not. And it, it's just it's just frustrating. That's all I have for now. Just the general FYI, uh, the whole Amanda Sandberg. I guess that would be a cowbell. She does have a white parent. Um, but we were uh, we were talking about Justice and I. We were talking about uh, the Hunger Games, and uh, she was saying, she was remembering Rue from like Hunger Games from like three or four years ago. And I was like, I don't think she looks like that. I think she's you know significantly older than that. I think she's almost eighteen, in fact. And so we were having a dispute about this, and I looked online, and I was like, yeah, she's going to be 17 in, like, a few months. Like, she doesn't – she's significantly older than that now. And uh, the first – when I went to look to see, to confirm that, yeah, she's a lot older than that. She doesn't look like that anymore. Um, that was the first thing that popped up, that she has been talking about racism and all that. I was just like, that easily the most dominant thing on the planet by far. But I was very, very proud uh, of what she had to say and, and her uh, – being someone who has a voice, she's well known from the Hunger Games, obviously, and other stuff that she's doing. Um, but to see her speaking out, that was uh, out awesome. Because she had quite a bit to say, and it was constructive, accurate, awesome, awesome black self-respect.
May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Well, since I'm in Texas, I probably heard a little bit more about the Sandra Bland case. But um, it's just interesting listening to people. Because I I don't know. I just, I, I sense, you know, black people are like, well, you know, if we go over here, then maybe white people won't bother us. Or if we go over here, then maybe white people won't bother us. But just listening, I I really don't hear any black people saying that. That no one's saying, you know, well, you know, we should work through the system and all this other stuff. Now they're not really that much through the system. I'm I'm hearing more like, a, you know, I think these people may be in trouble. They, they may have a problem now. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And then plus, I'm starting to hear what you're always saying, you know, vote, vote with your pocketbook. And, and, so, and I hear that a lot, too. I hear a lot of people saying, don't, don't spend anything ever again for any of these white people. So I'm, I'm hearing that since the Sandra Bland case. And... I think that people, I think that's getting a lot more publicity because it, it happened at a historical, you know, historically black university. So that's probably the biggest difference. That that one was at a, a black college, black university, and the other one wasn't. So that's why the two, since they happened the same at the same time, one had a lot more publicity. But... I don't know. I'm, I was just very interested to hear several people go, you know, I think they may be in trouble. I don't know. Who might be in Like white people are in trouble? Yeah, just some of the older black people are saying that they, they, may, be, they may be in a bit of trouble. Oh, did they articulate, like, what kind of trouble or why, why they would be in trouble? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just the stuff that I tell you about, you know, the DA and the sheriff always have their shenanigans. But uh, the elders, you know, they just, uh, you know, they just kind of let people run around in circles all the time. But now they're just, I mean, that's just what I've heard, like, from three elders, and they're saying that uh, they may actually be in trouble this time. And then plus, you know, with that um, Jade Helm thing, that started on the 15th, I was astounded with the Sandra Bland case. The Texas Rangers and the FBI are already, already involved. So I guess that's because they're already down the road. And they're already creeping all over the place in Texas. So that, that was really super fast that they would be involved. And um, you see the guy who initially pulled over for the traffic stop, he was a non-white person. So, and then the person who took her to the jail, that was another non-line person. So, you hear people getting sidetracked about saying, well, you know, that female police officer is black. She shouldn't have taken her to that jail, you know, after those white guys were sitting on her and mistreating her and stuff like that. She should have spoken up and said something instead of letting them, you know, mistreat her and then actually just driving her to the jail. So, people get to this they get sidetracked by that. And then they say, well, the first guy who pulled her over 
for not, you know, using her turn signal correctly. That was a Latino guy. And I mean, it's just, it's, and I said, oh, okay, so you hear people get, you hear people getting sidetracked by that. When it's actually, you know, it's the sheriff and the DA. They're always up to shenanigans. And they reward bad behavior. But I was just, I, I was the, the, the other elders, you know, usually they don't say anything. They're like, yo, they just kind of let everybody else run around in circles. But on, you know, just on separate occasions, you know, they just said that they think that they, they might be in trouble. And I thought that was interesting. I've never heard them say it before. just showing the patterns uh the anthony ware situation which is in alabama the black male that was pepper sprayed and somehow died uh in police custody um when i spoke with one of the family members they were saying that people the distraction there has been well who is the black person that called 911 in the first place and let's find them and you know take it to them because uh, they they should get some of the blame in this too and Uh, She said that that's, she said, (laughs) that is a total distraction uh, from what we should be focused on and just getting into some nonsense uh, to try to go find this individual and go, you know, do something to another black person, uh, that that is, that's just a total distraction. And And, she said that had been rolling. And you actually called the judge when this happened. Uh, if there are folks who have not uh, shared, we have about 10 minutes before we get to workplace racism. Uh, if there are folks with us who haven't shared yet. I do see Thomas in New York. I had not uh, heard from you. I don't know if there's an uh, issue with your line or something. It's not cooperating, but I do see you. I thought you uh, should have been with us. While uh, folks are waiting i thought there was a lot of stuff Uh, i guess i would say number one uh since we will be on tomorrow one of the things i want to address uh in the morning uh the jonathan farrell trial is supposed to start on monday uh jury selection begins on monday um i don't my sense right now and i could be in error but my sense is that i don't think that case is as popular as like trayvon martin Michael Brown, Eric Garner, some of the other cases that have gotten a lot of attention over the last, you know, couple years. Um, But I think enough people know about it with the climate and the attention on police shootings because he was shot and killed in 2013. Like this was right after 
the Trayvon Martin murder trial. This was, you know, a year before Ferguson and Eric Garner and all the other things that have happened since then. Um, my sense is that this is going to be um, a bigger deal as it goes on. Certainly now after the Charleston situation and Sandra Plain and everything else, I do think uh, it's going to bring a lot of attention. There is, unless I've been misinformed, uh, video of the shooting. I think there is dash cam footage that has not been released. I suspect much like the Trayvon Martin situation and, and other trial situations as this material becomes evidence in court that this material could become public. I think that this could potentially be every bit as traumatic as Trayvon Martin, which I regard that was like a very painful summer. Uh, I just remember lots of black people talking about feeling sad and helpless and that black life was worth nothing. And I mean, it was it was a moment unlike anything I can recall over the last five, 10 years or so, just in terms of the volume of black people that I was hearing with just total despair and just the whole trial was horrible, just seeing all this play out and not guilty. Uh, I have all that in mind. And, and with this case, it took them two grand juries. Now, yes, they did get to a trial, but it took them two grand juries. The first time it was going to be a no bill on Randall Carrick uh, as well, the suspected race soldier that killed uh, Jonathan Farrell. Uh, so just that's something I would kind of keep an eye on, like how people are responding, what information uh, comes out, how all of this goes. He, it's manslaughter, not first degree uh, murder or what have you. So that could be interesting, but that's definitely something to kind of keep an eye on. And uh, I might, after all of my gripes, end up having to write something about Empire. Uh, it will be challenging only because I'm going to see if I can do this without having to actually watch an episode of Empire um, just because I think I've heard enough about the show and I think uh, my understanding of racism that I can I, I can uh, imagine what's happening um, I would be writing about this because Viola Davis the black female she was in the help and she's the star of How to Get Away with Murder of course she was a nominated for uh, Best Actress in a Drama the Emmys um, what is it Tarji P. Henderson she was also nominated for the same category for her role in Empire. This is the first time that two black actresses have been nominated for this uh, award, Best Actress for the Emmys. A black female has never won this award. And people were saying, you know, this is great. And they had a whole segment talking about how great this is and we're making progress. And I just, in my view, I find it no surprise at all that it would be these two roles that get selected, the roles that Violet Davis and Miss Henderson are playing. Uh, we talked about the scene, How to Get Away with Murder, where she's called a filthy, disgusting slut by her white husband. Uh, I think, isn't uh, Miss Henderson's character on Empire, isn't she like an ex-con? Like, isn't she getting out of prison and fighting with her black husband, trying to get control of her company? Isn't that kind of the general, the gist of, of what it's about? <laughs> Is that accurate? Anybody that's on the floor, is that accurate? Is that to anybody's understanding? What was the question again? On Empire, is uh, Ms. Henderson, is her character, is she, like, getting out of prison and in conflict with her, like, ex-husband, black male? Isn't that kind of the, the gist of what's happening in the story and they're battling about this record company? Oh, well... Uh, I'm like you. I, I've never seen it before. So. 
Okay. I thought you were asking if, a general question. But. If nobody on the program, nobody that's ahead of right now has seen Empire, that is spectacular, I would say. Outstanding. But I find that hard to believe um, with the, with what I've seen and, and what I've heard. But if that, you know, if that is the case, that nobody on the line who has a hand up right now is has seen Empire or knows anything about it, great. <laughs> Forget I even mentioned it. We could keep on pushing. But just I thought that would uh, might get a chuckle out of folks who have heard me gripe about that before. But uh, I am looking forward to it. That'll be the only challenge to see if I can write this without having to actually watch an episode uh, of Empire. Uh, the other people that we haven't heard from that just got a hand up, uh, go ahead. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, to give best a host to all your callers and stuff on the line. Uh, unfortunately, I have watched the show, and the gist of it is right what you just said. <laughs> that it is. She just got out of jail, and they're arguing back and forth about a record company that, you know, she put up money for. So you're just about what the show is about is correct. <laughs> so just wanted to tell you that. But you probably could, you know, write an article without having uh, – seen the program because, I mean, if you have watched TV, you know, and seen movies, you've basically seen the program. You know, just it, possibly in blackface, and for us, I guess the, how I want to use the word, ratchetness, uh, but the, um, oh gosh, another word I started with, but it's just been ramped up, you know, it's just been ramped up to it. Uh, another level in this very fast moving program. So you probably could write an article without having watched the show. Um about the the um the situation about the uh relationship with the children five to ten years of age, that just to me is just mind blowing. Um but it's not shocking. I mean it's fair to say because even today, you know, remember kid Neil Rice Twelve years old, and you know, you know, to say that black children are older than what they are, and I, I was really shocked. So the information of Francis Scott Key, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I, I really was because first thing I just I think what is this the, the song that he wrote or whatever it is that he did, but I did not know that he was an attorney. And then I remember the, I don't know if it was him or uh, the other person about you know making thirty thousand a year. You know, the government, you know, and then building the government for things. And then, you know, the attitude is, yeah, I'm just going to work them to death. You know, and I mean, it's sad because basically we, we still see that today, you know, Jeb Bush is saying, you know, people, people should work longer, which is literally almost in the sense of saying people should work till they die. And that way, you know, you won't be able to collect the, the Social Security. We're going to keep taking it from your check, doing with it what we want to do with it, and you should just work when you die. You will never collect the Social Security. So you can see it all again. All tied in there together. Um, the story about the the gentleman that was trying to have the meeting in this that had the meeting in his house about voting, which basically led to his death. And just the coroner's inquest right there, and it's just like we don't know why he died. And you know his body was weighted down with a log. I think the man said a weight, and there's two bullet wounds. But you know we don't know why he died. How, how he died, and then you do the case about the black, the lack of black prosecutors, and to me that's just it's just all tied together. Even though this uh, gentleman uh, years ago, before now, we're talking about this, but that those are all tied together. And like you said about the word discretion, 
and discretionary, the discretion that they have. You know, white women horribly abusing their children, but, you know, cases coming into the prosecutor's office that, oh, we're not going to, uh, you know, we'll just let them sit there. And it was very painful. It was uh, a black person that brought it to the uh, Miss Rosie, and then she said she took it to her boss. And you know her boss tells her, you know, do you know do do your job, do do what you need to do. And she says she got a conviction in 15 minutes. That is some horrible child abuse, you know. But you have kids are a white male attorney or uh, or a white male DA or, or a white female DA, you know, who's sitting up there with these cases on their desk. And unfortunately, though, the children are the ones who are suffering. That the case about the Kylie Jenner and the 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 Amanda uh, Lavati see Hunger Games, so I really don't know much about the STEM girl, girl. But if I'm not mistaken, wasn't the story that what's her name, Amanda, that she was basically saying to Kylie, you know, if you're going to appropriate all this black stuff, why should that shouldn't basically she was saying shouldn't Kylie use her celebrity to speak out on on black issues? Wasn't that the story? Yes, ma'am. Or does anybody know? Yes, okay, ma'am. that's what I thought. So, you know, and, and, and when I listen to, like, the uh, young folks, you know, which basically, you know, to not even deal with that. Oh, you know, there's nothing wrong. It, 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 you know, well, I think that what he say, you know, you're racist if you do this with black people, you're racist with that. And, you know, I understand she really got taken to task and what went down on Bravo and how uh, Laverne Cox sat there and didn't say anything. And Andre Leon Talley sat there and didn't say anything. And then the Vern Cox, I understand, Cox, I understand, goes to her blog. And I wrote something that she said, why she didn't say anything. But what I wrote, I'm sitting up there saying to myself, I don't understand what you're saying. You know, I mean, it was just a mess. And I mean, I understand what the young lady was saying. If you're going to sit up here and, and wear your hair back in braids and the baggy pants and the crop tops and, you know, call yourself looking down, when black people are ha- having problems, why don't you use a celebrity to speak up about this? You know, and I think the thing that I've been hearing people say, you know, everybody wants to be black until, until the black problems come, and then all of a sudden everybody's quiet. You know, where are the Iggy Azaleas? Where are the Kylie Jenners? You know, uh, uh, where are the Justin Timberlakes or Timberfakes or, you know, all these ones, the Justin Beavers who, you know, want to appropriate this blackness, but then, you know, if things go on, you, you don't hear anything from them. And to be fair, you know, I, well, I, I take the word back, <laughs> you know, we pull that back. To be, it, I think it's sad also, too, because especially with a lot of stuff going on lately, I'm not even hearing much from black entertainers, so black, you know, in, in, entertain, entertainers. So it's, it's just, uh, I mean, the young lady got taken to task, and it's just really kind of sad that, like, it doesn't appear or you didn't hear voices that were out there defending her, because I do think she was right. You don't appropriate all this stuff. I mean, you're just a celebrity. You have a platform. And then they tried to play the game. Oh, you know, she's 17. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's 16 or what have you. And like Kylie, she's 17. But, you know, Kylie's 17-year-old boy with a 25-year-old black man. You know, she's, she's not that innocent. And, you know, her mother is the Kardashian and her dad is Bruce Jenner. But anyway, um... But, you know, to sit up there and try to say that, you know, she, she's 17. She doesn't know what this is about. That's, that's, that's not true. 
We'll have to you know, uh, but, leave it there so we can okay. make sure we get mm -hmm. to workplace uh, racism. Uh, the other folks, uh, mm -hmm. you should have got your hand up. I say that every week. Folks wait till last minute, then they get the hand up <laughs> and one talk. Um, hand up earlier. <laughs> Uh, I also, I did think it was significant, this white chick, uh, after she was called out for practicing racism, even though Miss Sandberg uh, didn't say that specifically, she, uh, victim, plays her victim role beautifully, and then seeks validation from a black male, saying, well, maybe I'll go hang out uh, with Jaden, uh, which is another standard mm -hmm. uh, racist act. Uh, at any rate, uh, we will get to workplace racism uh, the number to dial is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Workplace racism, uh, looking forward to hearing from folks. Uh, feel free. Hello, can I be heard? Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you. Um, workplace racism. Uh, I'm at work. Um, it's Monday. I'm at work Monday evening, and um, at the, I, I go into the, the home that I work in, and um, the the patient is supposed normally when I get there at seven, he should be released at dessert, not at starting dinner, so I can do what I have to do and get and get on the road. And um, I come in, it's like maybe 12 people, uh, may, I'd say a good nine Caucasians, um, one Asian, and the three black people. And the, that, well, the three black people that live there, that work, that live there um, for. And um, so I go in and I, I say hi, and then I, I see them before um, there. I just only give a collective hi because he's literally talking to the, the lady of the house. And um, so it's a Caucasian lady that uh, frequents the home, and um, I don't. I, I remember stating that I don't. I don't give. Eye, I don't give you eye contact. This is what I do. So I don't give her eye contact. So she does little things to get my attention because I don't give her eye contact. But there's no reason because you're a guest in the home. So um, they're eating. Oh, this is the care. This is um, the um, care provider speaking of me. And um, hi, hi. So um, I'm, I'm now I'm sitting in there, and and the, the God, the son, it's a son. He's the one that uh, frequents the uh, Caucasian females, and um, he he's uh, entertaining the Caucasian guests and the Asian. And I noticed the Asian lady. She has in order to see me, she has to literally spin around to see me. But I noticed that she keeps seeing me because um, I, I look in the living room because I hear the elderly lady choking. And I'm looking to see if her son is going to get up or are you going to keep telling this foolish story or are you going to get up and um, check on your mom? So everybody's staring at her. So I gave him this stern look, and then he got up <laughs> and went and checked on his mom. And um, so I'm waiting an hour, and now I'm getting agitated because it's like all you're literally doing is entertaining your guests. You're not, you, could, you could speed up this process so I can go home. So it's an hour and a half later, he comes, rolls his father in the room to me, I've been sitting there for an hour and a half, and um, 
the Caucasians, every, all the other uh, guests have left except for the Caucasian female that I don't necessarily acknowledge. So he puts them towards the piano, and I have to leave in 30 minutes. There's no way I can do my chore. So I do it anyway. I stay 30 minutes over, so I'm leaving. And the Caucasian lady is talking to the, 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 the lady of the house. And um, she's stating um, to her, that's your dog. That's your dog because they drink. So she's a Caucasian lady. She's nice and lit. So um, she's, she's she was trying to was looking for you. And it's because she's trying to get my attention because I don't necessarily acknowledge her. And it's like, well, you were looking for me? And she's like, yeah, she was looking for you. And I'm not even looking at her or talking to her. But I decided to look down at her, and she had this little foolish little child look because I guess she's doing all this stuff to get my attention, and I don't acknowledge her. And I noticed that the uh, the Negro male, he was a little agitated because I was I was agitated because you know I just thought that was real going above and beyond the call of duty to make Caucasians feel comfortable at my expense. That's how I felt, and I know he's a victim, but. It, it it just made me feel like you literally went out of your way, at, regardless of whatever, because I'm good to the, his parents. He could have sped the process up and made sure his father ate his dessert and then brought him in the room versus literally with this ridiculous conversation with these people. And you're just leaving me sitting in the room in the dark, basically, well, I'm in the dark because I could watch TV, but there's nothing on for a half an hour, an hour and a half. I just thought that was real ridiculous. But they, he tends to do that when the Caucasians come over because they, they frequent the home. And I just thought that was just real foolish. And then I just noticed that uh, even though I don't give, her, I give eye contact to the Caucasians, I don't think they look at it like I'm being um, or don't want to look at them in the eye because I'm afraid. I think they look at it like I don't have respect for them and acknowledge their existence for the kids of the attitude. So that, I just, I just, I don't know. It just kind of weirded me out, so I thought I would share that today. And I'll mute my line so someone else can share one of their stories also. And thank you so much. It is terrorism. White people are uh, scary. Uh, any other folks with us have commentary? Workplace racism? doing spectacular on their jobs and not having any problems being promoted getting bonuses raises company cars ecstatic glad to hear it that's fantastic that's what I will uh, <laughs> interpret it to mean if if uh, nobody's having any difficulties that you know things are just going splendid uh, for cows listeners in the area of labor 
can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, this is the caller from New Orleans again. Um, uh, the other day, or when I last at work, um, I had a situation with uh, one of my staff members uh, had came to me, and I guess she was upset about um, some issue with a manager, a disagreement she had, and basically she came to me basically venting, saying that she wanted to get her um, this manager in trouble, and I had asked her uh, by what means, and she, was, she um, pulled out a series of copies of emails that she and another staff member who happened to be um, a white female, this other girl who I'm talking to is a black female, and um, apparently this um, uh, manager had um, uh, left up their emails, or, or her email, uh, and um, they printed off several correspondence between her and the, the director, basically asking for, uh, um, uh, stating that her last two payments had bounced. And that um, uh, they needed to work out some type of payment arrangement before the auditors come at the end of this quarter. And so I'm reading the email, and I'm just like, no, there's no way, no, no way um, that this would be happening if this was a black person. First, got to ask, well, what payment is she um, trying to pay back to a company or an organization? So that's when the black female began to tell me, well, back in February, um, uh, this individual had taken the company card um, for whatever reason on her vacation out of the country and apparently lost her money and um, had to use the company card. Now, I just find that, Seriously hard to believe because my thing would be why would you risk taking the company card when you're traveling overseas? I mean, there is a thing called traveler's check, you know, or you let your bank know is there suspicious activity or this and the other when you travel. Um, you know, you'll have to call your bank and verify that, hey, um, if you see any um, certain purchases, transactions, you know, it's me, I'm not, you know, whatever. So I just find that hard to believe as an excuse for this white woman to be able to uh, work out a payment plan and then to come find out that um, this, the, the director of the organization um, bypassed the board member so they don't know. Um, she's only confided in me because she was upset that day. Uh, it happened like a week and a half ago. And... Um, so she, I was telling her, I was like, well, why don't you just send an anonymous letter um, stating what's going on? She was like, well, the accountant who happens to know what's going on is the only person that really knows um, what happened, and she was the one that confided in her. And I was like, well, you can't have me to believe that she only told you. I mean, this, this is too explosive because you're talking about three grand gone. And... Um, and she she's she's bounced uh, two payments, and they're basically, you know, if you read the email, they're saying, you know, you need to get this 
before these auditors come and this, that, and the other. So <laughs> I'm just like, it, I mean, I don't even want to say white privilege. That's that's just American Express uh, white supremacy or something. I don't know. But there's no way that would go down if, if you were talking about black people. I mean, immediately all I could think about is the Atlanta, Atlanta teachers, you know. I mean, it, it just it's just crazy. It's crazy. Not crazy. Standard operating procedure. That, and that's what I mean oh, about, yeah. about that discretion where apparently there was a white person who was powerful enough that he could subvert the board and make this decision without <laughs> informing them. Uh, he had the discretion. He had the power to do that. And I'm sure that sort of thing is rampant where white people are doing that sort of thing all the time hooking up white people and letting them break the rules. It it reminded me, if folks who uh, recall, I think this was the summer of 2013, we had uh, Kim Williams on the program, 40 Hours on an Unwritten Rule, and she has a section. It's, her book is about racism on the job, and she has a section in the book where she talks about uh, black people basically suggesting or implying that black people are likely to steal on jobs and I said man you talk about stealing on jobs like white people when they steal like it'll be everything is gone like the building like the whole nine like man you have no idea and I mean that is stealing to me that's what it sounds like that this woman did she stole from the company and they have just worked out you know a plan for her to pay it back but it sounds like she just stole from the company and you know maybe she got called or whatever however all this went down but uh, white people are doing that sort of thing all the time and I mean massive levels absolutely couldn't well, imagine go ahead, okay. go ahead go ahead well saying that the accountant who was a, another black female that works in the front um, she was the one I, I guess you know when you use company cards because uh, of the way it's linked I mean it's going to show the purchases and stuff right away so you rack up um, the the actual amount of twenty eight hundred. I'm just saying three grand to make it even. But um, it, it just my thing is, is that you can't use the excuse saying that um, you had it as an emergency or whatever. You know, basically she was saying that she it was the only car she had and this that, and other. I mean, why would you even bring your company car unless you were trying to? Keep up with the Kardashians and take a trip that you really couldn't afford yourself um, uh, on the behalf of the company. And then, you know, uh, I hear, you know, this the um, other person was telling me how, you know, she's watched them steal donations and, um, you know, all, all these white women in the front. And it's majority white women. And um, it's, it's only one or two um uh, black people, the accountant, and uh, one of the other advisors up front, and um, it it's just rampant, rampant. Well, I, I just can't imagine a, a black person getting that um, treatment or that uh, accommodation. You know, we, we're we're going to work with you. We're going to give you a payment plan, and and then she lied in one of the other emails that um, the director had shot back at her saying that 
one of the girls had said that you had set the payment on the desk. Now, why would you, I mean, I'm thinking at a minimum you're, you're paying about five or $600, supposedly, because they, you know, they got to have this paid before the end of the summer, before these people get here. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, how can you sit something that sensitive on some random person's desk, like you're trying to implement other people into your scheme and get them caught up in something. You know, that, that's how messy this individual is, or, I mean, technically how white people are. And I just, like, that's just standard operating procedure. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Any, uh, any of the other folks who uh, are with us, if you would like to share, feel free. Workplace racism. That sort of thing is uh, important to keep in mind, too. That's the sort of thing, Mr. Fuller, when he was saying to document, since you did find out about that, to document that it happened, because that can be precedent that, you know, hey, this sort of thing has happened before. Should a black person, you know, go out of the country and need to use the company card for a couple grand? Uh, well, hey, you know. Miss Smith did that a little while back, and we just arranged a payment plan. Accidents happen, and, you know, thank God the company was there to help out, right? So we can do the same thing for the flag. Like, that's what he was saying. Like, you want to take incidents like that so you can remind them that we're supposed to be, according to the Constitution, everybody is supposed to get the same treatment. We're not supposed to have discretion where we can do one thing for one person, and but then we don't offer that for anybody else. That is a violation of the Constitution. That's the way Mr. Fuller would put it, I think. Hello? Yes, ma'am. How are you? Right poorly. <laughs> oh, well, my name is Verna, and I'm calling from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I don't, I just caught the tail end of um, the conversation because that, someone on Facebook posted this number and said that if you had, you know, had any issues where you experienced racism or whatever, that I could dial into this number. But I just wanted to tell about an incident that just recently happened where this young man, Anthony Ware, died in police custody. They were actually called out on this young man because he had a, uh, outstanding warrant on attempt, attempting to elude, and once they got there, he rang in and they chased him into the woods in the back of a, a community. And when they brought him out of the woods, he was dead. Well, my issue is that the chief of police have came out and said that he wanted transparency so that he was going to release the video. He first said that the officers had a body cameras on and that after they reviewed the um, videos and after the investigation was complete, that he would release them to the public to assure us that his officers didn't do anything wrong. Um, all he said was done was that the victim was pepper straight. Well, when the videos were released, all we seen, they didn't show, he came back out and he made a statement and said, well, the officers who chased him in the woods, none of them were wearing body cameras. So the video that was released is an officer who came afterwards, and at that point, all we saw was them performing chest compressions on Mr. Ware, who was already dead at the time. If 
I don't know how many callers have, have watched the video, but if you watch the video, the man that's followed, the officer who came last, the one that we're following all throughout the video, at the end of the video, he's speaking to an officer standing directly in front of him, and the officer says, I had my body camera on the whole while we were in the woods. I want to know what happened to his body camera and why wasn't that video shown. Uh, I posted my question to Tuscaloosa Police Department news page, Facebook page, but my question has been de deleted and I'm no longer able to post to their page. Yesterday, the chief came out and said that he had asked some neighboring FBI from Birmingham, Alabama, which is about 40 miles from Tuscaloosa, to do an investigation in the case. He also had said when he said he was going to release the video that he would release the autopsy results. Well, I'm sure the autopsy results hadn't came back, but I'm sure they have a preliminary result. Well, we don't know what the preliminary results are. And I'm thinking it has to be more that's being told because why would he call the FBI in now to do a follow-up investigation? And I also have the issue of none of these officers have been suspended. They're all still working with pay. And the mayor hasn't spoken out, hadn't said one word on the issue. Being that I was born and raised in Tuscaloosa, I know that it's one of the most prejudiced cities in the state of Alabama because I myself have been racially profiled and assaulted and harassed by the police. So I just wanted to share my story with the callers because I'm just fearful of the fact that nothing is going to be done. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad uh, the information got posted. Um, I was telling listeners I've been in contact. One of our listeners uh, told us about the situation with Mr. Ware, I think, two, uh, Monday when we were on the air. And uh, I played a news segment about Mr. Ware's case earlier uh, in this broadcast uh, this evening. Uh, we're supposed to have uh, some of his uh, family members on the program this coming uh, Monday. Uh, Monday oh, okay. at uh, 7, 7 p.m. your time, 7 p.m. Central. Um, okay. For listeners, that would be 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Pacific this coming Monday. But absolutely, uh, we're spend, that's the whole program. Uh, it's talking about what happened with Mr. Ware, the video that they released, uh, the discrepancy with regards to they do have body cameras, but allegedly not everybody had a body camera, and the missing footage, and... Uh, the whole nine. That'll be this Monday that we'll be spending the whole program to talk about that. So absolutely, if you want to, um, if you have the time and, and are interested, certainly dial back in uh, this Monday. And, and I'm sure or I hope that we'll have a lot of other folks uh, to talk about what they saw and, and what's been happening uh, directly in Tuscaloosa. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for calling in. Okay. Um, I guess still on workplace racism because we will be spending Monday, as I said Monday evening on the situation with Mr. Ware we uh, whole evening uh, but workplace racism if other folks uh, have things that they would like to uh, share can I be heard yes sir um, yeah, so just a, a few observations that I've uh, experienced or had or what not um, like I've noticed the the jokes and like the uh, like phrases and whatnot that have been going on. Like one was uh, I was getting on an elevator and it is a 
an older black male who works up a couple of floors uh, on the top floor, actually. It was me, him, and a uh, black female, and there was a a, a sheriff bailiff. Uh, I guess they referred to him as a sergeant. And he pretty much socializes with everyone here and there. So we were getting on the elevator, and the black male, <laughs> he asked them, said, well, what are you doing just standing there? You, you about to arrest somebody? He said, yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the, uh, the child support arrest. He said, said would, you, would you like to be arrested? Or something like that. He said, would you like to be arrested too? I was like, oh, no. And uh, like that was, it had to happen within a couple of seconds. Because that's how people there in general tend to um, converse with each other, uh, talk with each other, interactions. And I thought that that was an act of racism right there, especially with how he said it. Like, it was a response, you know, of course, but he still said it in a way like, oh, okay, well, how dare he ask me how, or how dare this black guy ask me why am I standing here? But he did it very, he, the, the white guy, he said it, you know, very calmly, and it was effective. And then the door closed, and really nobody said nothing. And I'm just looking left to right, like, wow, man. Um, that, that was a, another incident where the uh, non-white person, he's, he's lighter skinned, but he uh, he's melanated still. Um, there There's times where he will say things I guess but the uh, supervisor he still pretty much dominates the conversation when it comes to being humorous and telling jokes like I said before and I guess they were asking this guy because I know he dates a uh, a blonde haired female like he he liked the you know the, the white chicks so they was asking him about oh well are you are you too sensitive and you're not manly enough and basically trying to uh, feminize them and whatnot. And he was saying, well, he said, oh, no, I, I wear I wear the pants in this relationship. And he says, but even though she takes them off, I wear the pants in a relationship. And the white dude, because he, he like hearing that kind of stuff. And I always say, I'm like, are you going to be constructive today? Are you going to be courteous? He says, well, wait, what are you talking about, man? I'm always courteous. But anyways, he says, oh, well, are you going to march in a parade? Like, well, I didn't necessarily know what that meant when he asked that, but I thought in my head, maybe he was talking about, like, him being uh, gay or homosexual, you know, when he's talking about pants and stuff. But that was the end of that one. And then there was a uh, another incident where he... <laughs> Me and him, we had went to go to the other building to help out moving uh, a shelf or something, or a drawer. And as soon as the, the supervisor that was supposed to, to show us what needed to be moved, he's looking at me like, "Oh my gosh, man! Do you see her? She looks like a like a, a you know a, a nice looking a nice looking woman. You know, and this is this woman like." in a what, 40 to 50, you know, this white woman. So I'm just like, hey, let's just go and get this done. And 
she, you know, she uh, welcoming us and said, oh, I haven't seen you, you guys here before. Uh, yeah, we work at the other building. And, you know, he just, like, in awe, like, fascinated, you know. And he told me the whole time after we were done uh, moving, you know, furniture and stuff. And there was this white woman that was very rude, and he almost snapped at her. Uh, but other than that, you know, we walked back to the older building, and we were, uh, reported back to our supervisor that there was uh, some a discourteous female there, so to speak, mistreating us. And he said he would call up and call up and uh, report it over there to, I guess, their supervisor, top white person. So. Yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, what I observed the past couple of days. I had a good chuckle about that. Uh, black people got in the habit on the job uh, of asking uh, white people and non-white people, <laughs> "Are you going to be courteous today?" Are you gonna be constructive? <laughs> I mean, he seemed to like he seemed to like when I asked him that, and because well, I didn't think it would take an effect because every time he tried to be, I guess, nice to you know anybody in general, he would always say, "Well, a lot of times he say, well, see, you know what? I try to be nice, but they just think that I'm acting weird, and then you know they they turn to me and they say, hey, I expect you to act that way, not him.'" I was like, oh, wow, man. Looks like you got to keep trying, huh? Wow. Wow. Mm. (laughs) Fascinating. Just the conduct and the way that white people behave, in my opinion, once you, you know, understand a little bit better what you're looking at and (laughs) what it means to be white, their conduct is fascinating. Once you understand what you're looking at, man. We have about uh, five minutes left. If anybody has anything else they want to make sure they get in. Workplace racism, about five minutes. Uh, we should be back in the morning uh, to talk uh, perhaps a word more on uh, the upcoming Jonathan Farrell case. I know we have listeners down in North Carolina. Um, again, I don't know how much of a big deal uh, that will be in comparison to some of the other larger trials that have happened. But uh, in the climate, I suspect uh, it will garner a lot of attention. That's my suspicion. And it's going to be traumatic. Uh, another very painful event for black people uh, I think regardless of the outcome uh, anyway any anybody else last five minutes any anything folks want to get in workplace racism before we conclude if I could add one more thing uh, this this reminds me I forgot to add this but I was thinking about how um, you were mentioning about the different ways uh, white women can practice racism. Like uh, a couple of days ago, 
actually maybe like a week and a half ago, there was this, there was a Confederate um, soldier statue in front of the, uh, I think it's the city hall. And, you know, they did a protest over there. And, you know, it seems like white people, whenever they want to network with each other and they know a black person is around, they'll kind of speak in a way where they will, like, lower their voice. But, yeah, I can still hear them. So, you know, one one of the white women, and this is a female, from my understanding, has a, uh, a northern accent, maybe like Iowa or something. Um, but she, she asked a question. She said, oh, uh, do you hear about that protest? <laughs> do you hear about that protest they're going to have? And, like, yeah, I heard it. It's, it doesn't make any sense, you know. Uh, it's been over there all this time. You know, what's the big deal? And the other, the third white woman, sitting down uh, further on at the same desk at the front counter, you know, because no customers were coming in. She said, yeah, you know, I just, I just wish people would do something better with their time. You know, and then I'm coming up there with their payment because I was helping someone with their record or their files. I was giving them copies. And, you know, they were like, oh, well, hey, how's it going? <laughs> it seemed like they turned up the niceness um, and the kindness more than they usually are toward me, if that makes any sense. Maybe they, I guess they were trying to get back into that deceptive mode because, you know, non-white person coming back around. So let me let me get back in the act again so he won't suspect nothing. So yeah, I, I thought that was uh, very slick because, and then even they were older white women. There was a younger white girl that got in the conversation with another white person. And then they were talking about, oh, yeah, they're going to the out there um, to the DMV. They're going to protest there. And I just don't get it. And it's a part of history. And, you know, and then this other white girl said, you know, uh, this guy went to Walmart and he tried to get the Confederate flag on his son's birthday cake, and they just rejected it. And he went back in there, and he asked for them to put an ISIS flag on the cake. <laughs> and uh, they ended up doing that. And she said, that's just ridiculous. How can you how can you support something that's uh, a flag that's anti-American? That's the term she used. And But you wouldn't use the Confederate flag. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, well, is there an article to where the site is? You know, I started asking questions. You know, did that happen here, per se? It's like, yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah, it was on one of these sites. I was going to post it on Facebook. And I said, interesting. I'll have to look that up. So that I, I play, like, I, I want them, you know, to tell their point of view. And they seem very comfortable with doing that. And they end up getting more comfortable revealing who they really are around me while me, you know, while I don't have to reveal anything but just ask questions. So that that was some uh, more studying I've been doing. Awesome. 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 Just asking questions. Just asking questions. Great thing you can do on the job, particularly on subjects where, you know, they're talking uh, as well as the uh, 
I guess, the white women that were voicing their displeasure about how people were <laughs> investing their time. And then when you popped up a little closer and, up, oh, up, oh, up, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Be super nice. I think I have seen manifestations of that before uh, as well. I think I, I just think we underestimate how frequently white people are talking about racism and talking bad about black people. Like they're doing that so often. Uh, probably a lot of times either they're doing it in a codified manner while we're there, or they were just doing it, you know, when we walked in, or they're itching to do it as soon as we leave, uh, or all a combination of of all three, perhaps. Uh, but I just I think there's so much of that 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 is is probably happening all the time and white people have probably gotten very astute uh, at being able to switch back over to be all hugs and kisses uh, when victims are around and they want to make sure that they're uh, they are not suspected of being terrorists uh, so that they can practice racism a little easier uh, with that uh, we did our three and we should be here tomorrow uh, for folks to uh, Number one, for folks who are outside the states and for folks who are uh, in the states but cannot, they normally, for whatever, this is a little too late for their schedule, uh, will be on tomorrow uh, at 12 noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, Shani will be here. Uh, as I said, I'll give a few thoughts on the situation with Jonathan uh, Farrell's trial uh, coming up in North Carolina, uh, kind of what to pay attention. I think I said we did our beginning of the year startup program. I said one of the events that you should have marked on your calendar is the Jonathan Farrell trial coming up in July, and uh, it is here. Uh, but we'll have a word on that as well as some of the other uh, literature. Um, I think last week I said that uh, I read that the passage from uh, ta Coates' new book that I, in my opinion, uh, stood out in terms of why white people were broadcasting it, where he was talking about uh, black parents using like switches and extension cords and, you know, tree branches to beat their children. And, uh, you know, I need to do it before the cops do and that sort of thing. And, and contemplating killing my black child that white people enjoy that sort of content. They enjoy that sort of macabre commentary on black hopelessness and despair, particularly if it's not going to directly uh, indict white people or it's nothing can be done, as long as it's just kind of presented in a, you know, oh, total black pathology and despair about all this. I think they really enjoy that sort of content. And uh, I said that last week, this week, it has continued prolific coverage of his text. Uh, they even did the whole beef racket. I think people remember that, particularly folks who've seen a lot of hip hop where they will use uh, a beef between two uh, so-called rappers to increase sales. I think they had that going on two fronts because they had some sort of uh, conflict or verbal sparring with uh, Dr. Cornell West and Ta-Nehisi Coates. And then they had one between Ta-Nehisi Coates and a white writer at the New York Times uh, who was talking about listening to Ta-Nehisi Coates as a white man. Uh, this was a big to-do on Friday and had lots of people talking about it. So they had that, and they just had other articles that were reviewing and talking about the book. It was on uh, front page, the Washington Post, the New York Times on their site yesterday. They had two articles on the uh, front page site about Ta-Nehisi Coates. So I will, uh, yeah, I would submit that you have a whole nother week, in my opinion, that more evidence that white people are definitely promoting and want people to read uh, what Mr. Coates has to say, victim of racism and that's not an indictment of him, that's just I'm just observing, they don't I haven't seen 
Dr. Marimba Ani or Dr. Kamal Kanban, Dr. Welsing. I haven't seen them get that sort of coverage, particularly for a black person to be talking about racism. That is a bit unusual. That's it. Uh, thanks to all the folks who uh, chimed in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, again, we'll be back tomorrow morning, and we will have uh, witnesses, family members, friends of Mr. Anthony Ware with us uh, Monday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, to talk about everything that has transpired over the last week in Tuscaloosa. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Remain codified if you're going to be out enjoying the summertime weather, all that good stuff. That is great. Have fun, uh, but just do not relax your codification. Uh, you definitely do not want any unnecessary problems. I would encourage sobriety as long as the system of white supremacy exists. But if you can't do that, at least be codified. You certainly don't want to be behind the wheel of a vehicle. I would even be cautious about being a passenger or pedestrian uh, race soldiers. They are looking for any opportunity uh, to ruin your life, perhaps even take your life. Uh, just you know, keep that in mind. If you're going to consume any intoxicants, I would say make sure you do so in an environment where there are no white people. You do not want to be under the influence in the presence of whites, and you do not want to be present with whites who are under the influence. That is a horrible combination. I would even be careful about non-white people who are intoxicated in any way who are around you. It's just too many examples of us making horrendous life-altering decisions when we're not thinking correctly and we're already in a terrible predicament anyway under the system of white supremacy so all of that to say under conditions of white terrorism sobriety would be best creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect in all areas of people activity each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. A victim. Man, I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>